0: Are you down for Gran Turismo? Because Gran Turismo is down for you. Well, hello and welcome to Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Beck, and alongside me this week is one Remotely uh, Saul Bridges bringing y'all episode
1: 253.
0: That's right. Yeah. You know, I feel like we've really gotten over our hump of having a hard time completely remembering what episode we're on, or at least no, used, I have. We used to have to Google it. <laughs> Can we please Google Triangle Squared? All of our Google results were from us. But listen, if you're joining us this week, you may notice that there is a face and or voice that is not here that you are missing, and that is a voice of one Chris Figgs. Chris, I know you listen to these things. I don't really understand why, because you're part of them. But hi, Chris. I hope you're doing well. <laughs> In the future, Chris, I hope you're doing well. Um, But he is out today. He had a tight schedule and wasn't going to be able to be on the show for long. So instead of rushing the show or rushing his place on the show, uh, he decided that it would be best for him to just skip out so that the show could be as good as it needs to be um, without having to worry about that. So, Chris, thanks for falling on your sword, uh, as they say. But we will do this show the good old-fashioned way with just me and Saul. So stick around if you're new to kind of see where you can be part of the community and, and join in on things like the community's take. But we always start this show off in a time-honored way and that is a simple. Saul, what have you been playing this week? My
1: healthy dose of Elden Ring, which I have now beaten. What is and, a
0: healthy dose of Elden Ring?
1: Um, I put like 50 hours into it in the time that it's been out. Okay. And for me that's a, <laughs> for me that's a lot.
0: Yeah, is it um, is it four is it three to four hours a night? Is that your healthy dose? No. A daily no, that's, regimen? That's, a daily a daily regimen of Elden Ring? That's too much. Uh <laughs> um, hold on. The game's only been out for like three weeks and you've played fifty hours, so I mean It's the weekends that's getting me. Mm. It's it's how so for much the time. days that you forget your your nightly dose, you you just triple or quadruple up, right? Yeah, like, um, we got home last night, like what, like nine? Yeah, that sounds about
1: right. And we, I played until midnight, so there's three hours easily there. Um, yesterday, actually, has been my most productive, I don't know if you classify as productive, but it's my most, <laughs> like, busy day that I've had in a long time of, like, like I woke up, we got groceries, uh, I came home, I played Elden Ring for two hours, and then me and Seth went and played a round of disc golf. And then he came over after we went and got lunch, and then we went and saw Jujutsu no Kaisen. That's a fantastic movie. I recommend it if you are a fan of anime. Um it's actually uh Jujutsu no Kaisen Zero, to be specific. Um but then then we all went and played disc golf again, and then we all went out to eat. It was a fun and night. Then
0: we all came back and played games until like midnight. So I mean what a what a stack today that turned yeah, it, out to be.
1: <laughs> it was incredibly stacked for me. Um, but yeah, so Elden Ring. I have been, I have a started Triangle Strategy, and I play like four hours of it, technically, um, mm-hmm. but not much of that. What have you been playing?
0: Now I know you played a little Destiny there because I played with you. Did I? But I think we're um, I think we're sad to say that you not you've. We've finished that mission. Yeah, that's right. And that was the last one that I think you did. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. So we'll get on there. But speaking of destiny too, uh, I got on and last week and into this week, I had been soloing the witch queen campaign, uh, for the most part. I've had a few times where Sean hopped on and helped me one of uh, Chris's friends. And I guess at this point, my acquaintances slash friends, um, Got on. He helped me with two missions. Diana helped me with the very first mission the first day I came back to playing. But all the other missions I soloed up until I got to the final boss and the final mission. Uh, I did the whole final mission solo up until the final encounter. And then it's just hard on Legendary. So I kept getting about halfway through it. And it's like a bullet sponge situation and uh, Sean finally hopped on and helped me get that finished up. Witch Queen is wonderful. I think it's the best Destiny has been, and I'm going to say that that includes The Taken King. I think Witch Queen is the best expansion that they have put out so far. Uh, I think Taken King gets this extra rep of saving Destiny 1, so it was great, but it had bigger implications for the series because without The Taken King, Destiny may have faded into obscurity as a whole. You know what I mean? Um, So I think that that's kind of what goes on with the Taken King being the best expansion ever, though it was also a very great expansion. Um, I know that you've essentially played all the story for the most part uh, and know what it is. So I'll be curious once you've got a little more time in it as well to see what your thoughts are for the expansion. But as a strictly single player or at least, you know, story campaign focused experience, it was wonderful. Best that Destiny has been from a game design and mission design standpoint. It is. Um, Yeah, man, getting Void 3.0 was really fun. I liked it a lot. Getting to, and I don't even, I normally never played Void. I think you've probably known for a long time. My primary class was always Arc until it started being that we were doing a lot of raids. And we always needed somebody with a well. So then I became like, when we're doing raids or anything like that, I'd be solar and I'd run Well of Radiance with uh, Lunafaction boots on. But this is the first time I've really gotten super into Void without being like, "Oh, well, I've got to do it to match for the strikes," or "I've got to do it to get a couple of Voidability kills knocked out for a thing." This is the first time I've really dove in and, and enjoyed it, and it's pretty good. I like it a lot. Well, good. Are you uh, on your main? Do you main a Hunter, a Warlock, or a Titan? I, for some reason, I feel like it's Warlock, but it's Warlock
1: and Titan pretty much split evenly.
0: Okay, yeah, I think it's Donovan who quite likes the, uh, and I played with him this week, the Hunter as well. I think he likes Hunter a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it was Hunter and Destiny one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so it's it's been really good though, and I, I'm enjoying it, and curious to see where the game continues to go as they continue to do stuff. Um, I have also played a very, to use your terminology, a healthy dose of Gran Turismo though that was sadly plagued with some <laughs> stuff this week that we will get into in the long run. We don't want to spill too much into um, you know bigger topics in this section and complete, but suffice it to say there were issues that kept me from being able to continue my enjoyment and rose some questions about Gran Turismo's uh, design aspects that we will get into in the long run. But to gush on the game for a minute, I think it may be my favorite game of the year so far. I will just play it how you've been playing it. Next time you come over, you should hop in the wheel. Yeah. Tell everybody how it's, you've been playing it. Yeah, so my dad has had it for a while, and I've been meaning to buy one, but they're a little expensive. But I've got the steering wheel set up where there is a racing seat with a mount that goes on a frame that has a pedal adjuster that you can adjust the angle of the pedals. And then there's a spot to mount your steering wheel so that you're basically sitting in a cockpit. Uh, They call them simulator cockpits uh, if you go to look at them online. And I want to get one that's actually better than the one I'm currently playing with. But the one I'm playing with still gives you that feeling. Uh, I'm using a Logitech G29 uh, and Sadly, this cockpit does not have a shifter mount, so I can't use the shifter that I bought as an added accessory that you can actually plug in and there's a clutch pedal and a a shifter so that you can actually move through the gears in a manual transmission. And I do intend on doing that as soon as I can. But right now I'm doing that. And there's just something, I think this is the first time a Gran Turismo has caught me this hard. I like sport, but sport missed a lot of the things of a typical Gran Turismo, at least early days. So I never really got lost in it the same way. At this point, I've played more Gran Turismo 7 than I have played Sport the entire time that I've owned it. And I enjoy wow. Sport. It's just I've been playing a lot of Gran Turismo. Uh, and it's been, it's been it's almost become like a family thing, weirdly enough. Trace has been coming over and play it. Kyrie's been wanting to play it with me. Uh, Allie, my niece, Trace's daughter, uh, has done it. Trace's son, Gunner, came over the day. He's a little dude. And we were working the pedals for him while he was sitting in one of our laps, whoever he was. And then he would just do the steering and play. And it's fun. It kind of reminds me of whenever I was a kid. I was telling Big Seth about this last night. We didn't really have a lot of money. But my dad had a PS2. And one of the only games we had for it was Gran Turismo 3 A-spec. And I was probably eight or, or nine at that point. It was 2001, if I remember. And he had bought this little, like, at the time, probably like a $60 wheel, which, you know, was more money in 2001, but it was a very bad wheel. It wasn't really well at all. He built this PVC pipe frame that wrapped around, and you'd set a kitchen chair, like a table chair, inside of it. And it would keep it from pushing forward when you pushed on the pedals. And it just came up and had a wood mount on top so that you could have the steering wheel mounted. And as an eight-year-old, I lost my mind. I thought that was so cool. It was like, I'm getting to drive and I'm getting to be better at it. (laughs) And so it's kind of cool to be giving that to the kids because that's one of the better memories I have as a kid, specifically with my dad's side. All of my memories as a kid that are as weird as it is, all of my great memories as a kid with my dad are like, 90 percent gaming related he's the one who got me into gaming so it's cool to kind of give that gift off to another generation of kids and have them be excited about it Kyrie thought it was so cool that she got to drive as well so it's been a good time but you should definitely play with it um whenever you come over i'll kind of uh i'll kind of take you you kind of know you played gran turismo sport when we did the uh the PS Vita rivalry. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of know, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how much different it is with a wheel. The wheel fights you. Uh, when you start to lose traction, the wheel will, will grab you. If you understeer or oversteer your uh, steer, you'll, you'll feel the wheel kind of start yanking and pulling to where you almost can't do it. <laughs> and you kind of just have to let go and let it adjust itself almost like power steering in a car would do. Uh, so I'm curious to see you do that and enjoy it. But I th- outside of that, I know we played some, uh, some stuff yesterday, but I don't really think I've played anything else. I've been kind of bouncing through what I want to play. And there's... I kind of had this discussion with y'all yesterday. Elden Ring is this weird position of me not knowing. Sorry about the dogs barking. I'm sure you guys can hear. Um, Elden Ring is in this weird position for me where I don't dislike it at all. And I even would go as far as to say I like it, but I'm not being drawn to play it. And I think, uh, as I told you yesterday, every time I play it, it makes me want to play like Demon Souls or Bloodborne. And what I think it is is not yet for me, at the very least, in my very minimal five to six hours of play. Um, has it done anything for me to where I feel like the open world supersedes the way I felt about the very tightly crafted I don't want to call them corridors, but tightly crafted smaller worlds. And I was kind of curious what your take is on. I mean, we talked a, a little bit about it yesterday, but for you, I mean, do you have a preference so far? Do you think the open world in Elden Ring is like supersedes what you loved about the world design for Dark Souls one through three and Bloodborne? Um, so I think it's been, it's not been
1: replaced, but I think it's a f- weird evolution that Elden Ring is doing so everybody knows that like the stereotypical level design for Dark Souls is really well done and the world design is as well well to be fair that's still present in Elden Ring like I'm doing uh, there's a it's technically the second area of the game um, because it's just like the second that's the intended path of the game but -hmm. it's called uh, Raya Lucaria and uh, it's the academy and the level design there is in in there, in the academy is fantastic, but the overworld around it, it's called Lyurnia, is also fantastic. Um, I think it's this weird evolution of like, you still have that tight-knit level design in this game within these areas, but then the outer world is very reminiscent of how Dark Souls 1 did the loop, and just in case with everybody, with Elden Ring being a thing and people are replaying Dark Souls 1, I'm not going to say what the loop is, but there's a moment in Dark Souls 1 where you essentially make a circle back to another area. And it's, it's like, wow, this whole hub is a circle. And it's really well done. And I think that that kind of stuff is still present in Elden Ring. Um, I think that the way that you traverse the area uh, or the entire game, I think that it also lends itself to be uh, wildly varied in so much that there's so many jaw dropping moments that I had that I had I I haven't had in a Souls game since Bloodborne. And what made me what made my jaw drop with Bloodborne um was an aspect of it that kind of turned well you have that same kind of storytelling in Elden Ring, but you have it with the environmental changes. Um, so I think that that's kind of where the special world design happens with Elden Ring is the color palette is the most versed in any Souls game ever. Uh, yeah. Actually, I would say it's probably the most versed in any open world game I've ever played just b- because literally there's there's so many different areas in this game Um that looks so drastically different, I was actually talking to Seth about that yesterday whenever he was over here, because we were looking at the map, and the map that you start out in is fairly open and fairly big, yet it 's such a small part of the over oversized map or the overall
0: map and which is weird because like I, I don't want to interrupt you necessarily, but mm-hmm. in that specific space. I'm curious your feel. I almost feel like Bloodborne or... And maybe I'm being a little over it, but I almost feel like map-wise and walking around and how wide it is, there's a feeling to me that even Limgrave, the or Western Limgrave or whatever it's called, the opening the opening chunk of the map that you can play, yeah. And I know mine right now is a currently very small version of that. That feels like previously an entire Souls game would fit within roughly the same map blueprint. It may be a little bit more room because. As you have said, there's there's times where these Souls games have like layers where you have extra room, but it's just below something else. But it feels right. like the map size of the of the beginning part to me, and I don't mean this in a good or a bad way. I just mean that was one of the things where I was running around. I was like, I feel like if I if I sped run through a traditional Souls game and Went around this one and just kept running and tried to cover every square inch. I feel like I would get done roughly the same time if you're not accounting for like. And you're talking about for just Western Limgrave. Yeah. Like it seems massive. And again, not not in a positive or negative way, but it seems as big as like a typical Souls games singular area, like our singular entirety is. And that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it has that, it evokes that feeling in me well and f- i'm I'm undecided as to whether I think it's a positive or a negative, yeah I felt the I same think I'm way in the middle
1: I felt the same way um for the starting area too like I was like, this is mm-hmm. because um like if you start out at the place, it's called the first step it's it's the very first grace that you unlock where the tree sentinels pacing up back and forth yeah if you go off to the east, no west. There's like the there's like the beach, and then if you go off to like the east, there's like the like the lake with the like the the dragon burnt ruins and stuff, mm-hmm. and um, then you eventually make your way through like how the story once you progress and you get to the um, Stormville's gateway or whatever it's called the 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 place you have to eventually go. It feels massive. On second playthrough, actually, this is like more like my fourth playthrough um or my fourth character but i've repeated this first area a couple times once you unlock torrent your uh, steed um Mm -hmm. it begins to feel a little bit more smaller and then um when you know this is always a thing with souls games but like once you have your build in your head and you know what your build is going to be and you know what you need for that build there's a lot of the games that you can technically ignore. Like you don't have to go through. You don't have to do, of course, unless you just want to. And um, I agree that like it, it definitely feels like a whole Souls game could fit within Limgrave. Once you get more used to it and you explore it more, you'll see that like um, it's a little bit smaller compared to the rest of the world than you think. Um, because when the rest of the world opens up, it's it 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 is it is massive. I I I. In scale, I don't know how big this game is compared to other games like Skyrim and stuff. Um, yeah. But it is... It's is, It's hard to compare with it being a third-person game because I played Skyrim first person. Um, yeah. And I haven't explored the world as, as best as I could because like, that's the thing. I think there's like 156 named bosses in this game with health bars, <sighs> I think. Um
0: That's a lot. (laughs) It's a a lot. So the game is... Well, I would say, like, typically an average Souls game is somewhere in the ballpark of, like, like 20 to 40. Yeah, I was going
1: to say, like, 23 to, like... At max. 40, yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe an after DLC on that. Um, Oh, yeah, true. Hold on. I want to see if I can Google it. Because I I did. How many bosses in Elden Ring? Um, There's 12 mandatory bosses. Um, That's not really a spoiler. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, named bosses are interesting because like, you have that opening area, and I don't want to say too much, but it is the opening area, and there's, everyone knows the ideas of dungeons. So you have dungeons, and every dungeon has its own, essentially, boss. It's a named boss with a bar that pops up on the bottom of the screen, and you have to fight. There are essentially many bosses in the grand scheme of how I think the game is meant to be designed, but they are named bosses. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, like, but I'll say this: like, you're gonna come across the same couple of named bosses that are not mandatory a few times, sure. like with different circumstances. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, in terms of like beating the game, I'm trying to think. In Dark Souls, three, you had four. You had the four um, lords you had to beat. Um, and then you had two. Three, so there's we're up to seven bosses. Um, just off the top of my head, there's seven bosses. Oh, oh, wait, no, champion of eight, nine. No, that's not mandatory. So I'm like I'm up just on the top of my head. You're up to nine mandatory bosses in Dark Souls three, and this has twelve. So it's pretty similar in that regard. But with this being open world, I think I think I just read that there's eighty three. Well
0: you kind of touched on something that I think I noticed like when Chris was here and I was watching him play and I'm not reached this point in the game myself yet. Uh, but I think I, I might've said it on the show. So if I'm retreading ground is what it is. But um, Chris was in a castle like section. I think I've talked to you at least about this, whether it was on air or not, I don't remember, but I could see that idea of what you're talking about towards like the other games are kind of represented in this one, in that fashion, because there was a part where Chris was going through and, uh, and it, it, to this game's, you know, defense in this thing, this is great, that it almost looked as good in this very tight-knit uh, castle environment that he was in. Um, it almost looked as good as, like, the opening area of um, area in yeah. Demon's Souls Remake. And it looks very similar. Not quite as good because still it's from software. And they're them getting even close to Demon Souls remake is impressive. Well, and it's <laughs> a cross-platform game too. And it is a cross-platform game. That's true. So in that regard, uh, I was like, man, this is impressive. And I could see what you're talking about where it's like the game has pockets of this is a as Souls-like as you're going to get with any original Souls-like thing. It just happens to be nestled into a much wider world. But I guess my current standpoint or my current feelings and then we can kind of move on. But my current feelings is that I'm not being drawn to play. And I think some of that comes from me not feeling the immediate benefit of the open world that nestles around those. Because there are moments in the game even so far where I've had l- smaller areas where I'm like, this feels like exactly what I want out of a Souls game in terms of from what other ones have given me that I would expect The unexpected parts of this game have yet to win me over. And so I'm kind of at war with myself there. Though I will say one of the reasons, I think, is because this feels so much like a Souls game that I hardly use my mount so far because it's not second nature to me.
1: I did. Yeah, that's how I was at first, too.
0: It's just really hard for me to remember. And then the few times I've tried to do combat on the on on the back of your mount, I don't really like it. I don't think it's very... Again, I haven't done it much. Yeah, but so far, it's not, it. it's not immediately very... It doesn't feel as controlled. And it, that's probably the, what you benefit in speed and ability to maneuver, you lose in the ability to have finer control of where you're hitting and how you're hitting and that seems to make sense within it but i'm not loving it yet in terms of the, the mount so i'm curious i literally started elden ring pulled off to do something else and then just didn't end up playing it the other night and i was like oh huh, that's interesting i was going into it like all right now's gonna be my moment and i got so easily distracted um and which is interesting because i was excited for elden ring And Chris was not. I think you remember Chris's, like, I'm not worried about that at all. And then Chris comes and plays Sekiro, and suddenly Chris is like, oh, yes, I must play Elden Ring, and I love it. And it's it's the most exciting game of all time now. It's just a really weird place to be. I I think it's interesting how expectations of what you think you're going to like about a game can kind of flip around on you. I don't think I expected the game to be as big as it is, and I don't know why. But I guess even though they're calling it open world, I thought, well, there's no way it's just going to be this massive. And it well, all I keep hearing about it, even though I've not experienced it myself, is the beginning area is like a small section of the game.
1: it is <laughs> that's that's the That's the thing of like when you and I think it's honestly you'll experience it the more you play it. if like by the time you unlock an area and you're like, "dang, I open up my map, and I'm way over here, and scrolling all the way back to Limgrave, there is a real there's a lot in between here and there. Like it kind of clicks, but also, this may be an unpopular opinion, but I think every Souls game, even for me, it takes like eight hours to finally click. Once you have, because every Souls game always tries to introduce something new traditionally. Yeah. And um, Dark Souls 2, you had the weird human effigy thing on top of uh, weird, like kind of movement mechanics compared to Dark Souls 1. It felt different, different directors. Bloodborne, you had everything was different about that game in comparison to all the other games with similarities between Demon Souls and Dark Souls. And then Dark Souls 3 was a lot faster. And then you had Ember to worry about, and it was just getting used to how the it felt. And then in Elden Ring, you have like this weird jump mechanic, you have a horse to worry about, the map. It's a lot to take in. I think once you start taking everything in, and it starts you get start feeling more copesthetic with everything i think is that that's when it starts to turn because like like i t- i said this before of like bloodborne i played for like 4 hours the day it came out and i was like yeah this is okay but then like the next day i played 4 more hours of it and i think once it clicked it clicked hard it was it was not just like a um I, I kind of put the control down like that game's really good. It was like, I have to keep playing this game and it's all that I'm going to consume when I'm not playing yeah. the game. It It's just, that's how it is. I think with most people who play the game and for those that it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's that's fine. I know people like, like it may never click with you like that this way. I think, I think though that I it find it interesting because it feels like cr- it happened with Chris. It clicked. And once it clicked, it clicked hard. And then with me, it clicked and it clicked hard. And with big Seth, it clicked and it clicked hard but um i think it just requires a little bit more and i think by like 10 hours in or like maybe maybe when you're ex- done exploring the first area and maybe the first boss that you beat um the first story boss his name starts with an M. I um i think once once you do that if it doesn't click it probably won't um but that's yeah you know, hard we'll to see. Say for i mostly i
0: think I think, and we really will round it off after this, but I think that you're probably not far off, but I think one of the things, when I'm thinking back to all of the other Souls games and when I played them and why I played them, um, I think one of the big differences is I did not anticipate uh, the fact, well, let me back up for a second, like Bloodborne. When Bloodborne came out, I remember that, That was all I really had to play at the time. So I was compelled to play it from from moment one. As soon as I got into the game and started playing it, and I think I told you, I spent like probably six hours in the opening area, Old Yarnum. That was it. That's all I did. Um, And whenever... And I was like, I want to get real familiar with the game. And I was having a blast even just completing the same little loop and, and getting better and getting better and kind of learning when to use what things and learning eventually that I could level up and then using that to my benefit. And the game, uh, I agree, the game didn't click until Father Gaswan was beating, g- beaten. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or Gascoyne, whatever the heck his name is. Guess Point being, it. That's when the game clicked hard, but the game compelled me to play it with before it had even clicked hard. And I'm not getting that from Elden Ring. Big difference, though, between the two of them is at the time, again, Bloodborne was all I had to play. So it was okay. I was compelled to play it because it was good, but I think it also didn't have to compete with anything. I think what's kind of going on right now with Elden Ring is I didn't anticipate... I knew I was excited for Gran Turismo 7. I didn't anticipate for Gran Turismo 7 to click and click hard this, the way that it has to where that's all I want to play. So I think what's really happening with Elden Ring is I can't give it the time that I really need to give it because I'm so inundated and wrapped up in this other game that I want to keep playing. And I almost wonder if I really won't – it's either that I want to play Elden Ring and then Elden Ring will click hard and then I will – Inadvertently, because of the way I play games, and you know, I'll be pulled away from Gran Turismo. Yeah. Or I won't even be able to start Elden Ring in earnest and get clicked until I'm kind of had my feel of Gran Turismo. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, the cool thing about All Souls games is like they have like a 10 year lifespan for each one of them. And that's (laughs) that's for when there's uh, like thousands and thousands of people still discussing them on Reddit. And other like forum boards and other places. Um, But the the crazy thing is, like, Dark Souls 1 is still to this day played by so many people. If you go to their Reddit to discuss it or talk about it, or if you want to find somebody to co op with online, they have thousands of people still playing at any given time. And the same goes for every game. Um, So that's the crazy thing of like, at any given point, I think in the next two or three years, at the bare minimum, Elden Ring will be relevant enough that you'll have somebody to discuss the game with in our community and, of course, with me and Seth. Because like even even like Seth, Seth hasn't been in the game yet. He's like five to six bosses away. Um, But uh, he's already talking about what he wants to do on his second playthrough. Um, I'm on my second playthrough. I'm already thinking about what I'm going to do on my third playthrough. Um, So it's kind of like one of those things of like, even if he doesn't click now, but you hope it clicks later, I'm sure that there's still conversations to be had. Um, because yeah. me, for me, that's a motivator. Uh, I don't want to play a game that's dead. I don't want to play a game if sure. I don't have a community to talk about with or anything like that. And thankfully, with it being a FromSoft game, it won't be like
0: that. Well, speaking of community, I think now is as good a time as any to go ahead and hop into the community's take. Nice segue. And last week, we had uh, Jehudi, one of our uh, longtime listeners and patrons, reach out and kind of offer up a question. And his question was simple. What game mechanics slash game design aspects do you not like? And he gave a few examples, and I did as well. Building mechanics, skill trees, escort missions, built-in grind, you name it. If you hate it, name it. Uh, And we got a lot of answers. And it was interesting that this is one of the ones that a lot of people answered before we ever even started putting the question out there. So, thank you all. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... No fate, one of our uh, patrons and listeners says game mechanics. I find really frustrating climbing platform ledges and your character jumps nowhere near the ledge that you were aiming for. He says AI companions that either don't do what you order them to or just let you die when you need their help the most. Uh, and to that, I always think of the classic Donald meme of heal me, Donald. <laughs> and <then> he just <laughs> doesn't and he says oh and auto saves that save a split second before you die yeah oh yeah that is a that's something that's a lot less uh prevalent these days but there was a point when auto saves were becoming the standard in the industry through the ps3 and 360 gen where i felt like that happened skyrim had it (laughs) had it a couple of times like where an auto save in the
1: worst moment possible and i have to reload a manual save
0: what I really like, about, I, I think where they've landed, and this is pretty smart, is that a lot of games, Horizon Forbidden West being a really good example recently, it keeps a backlog of like your last 30 auto-saves so that if it makes one bad one, you can go back as far as you need to before you get one that is going to work without you losing too much progress. You know what I mean? Yeah. That game autosaves constantly. And that's nice. Which... It's good because you don't even you're not even aware it's happening. You know what I mean? It's like it's you at any given time you're pretty much covered. Uh, but yeah, those are pretty interesting. Um, he brings up grinding mechanics a little bit later down, and I wanted him to kind of you know give an example of what that is. And he, I think I get what he's saying. So games that have built in grind, basically, where the idea is you're going to play the game, and then we're going to have this feature that you can really only access if you just play the game in its normal way over. And over and over again, uh, and I do think that there are games that try and introduce that as an additional layer that just don't succeed. And then I think there's games that put that in as the core of what it is and do succeed. I think Diablo three is a big example of grind being kind of the point. You yeah, know, it's like getting that better build and being able to slowly get your character up to where you want makes Diablo three really fun. And Destiny two has that, even though it can feel a little more a little more grindy sometimes. <laughs> But uh, any thoughts on those, Saul? Uh, I agree. I don't like grinding mechanics
1: and the auto saves. While not, I I think that's more of a feature than a mechanic, but I don't, I agree with I don't like that as well.
0: Well, I will say, I did end up switching the question a little bit because I noticed a lot of people would bring in game design choices. Right. Um, And I still think that's fair, though. I think if there's something about a game design aspect that makes you go, okay, yeah, I don't really care for this. Then I think it's, it's fair game. Um, Let's see. Rude cold. Another one of our patrons says, "I really don't like building mechanics and survival aspects put in games that aren't actually survival games." I'm glad you say this, Rude Cold. <laughs> I
1: agree <laughs> because actually. one of the
0: things one of the things I dislike the most about Fallout seventy six is the survival mechanics. But to, to to Fallout's point, Fallout has always been going through these weird p- phases of difference. Cause you have like the first two fallout games, which are in t- way way different <coughs> than fallout three and four. And then 76 is more similar to three and four, but it's leans so heavily into these survival aspects that it feels like you swung and missed, even though it's clearly exactly what they were going for. Um, so I don't know. I kind of seem like you might be on the opposite side, because if I'm not mistaken, aren't you one of the people that kind of like the survival aspects of, uh, of the mods that people brought into Skyrim.
1: Yeah, the survival. So, survival aspects in games like that are fine. I don't like building mechanics. I don't like, I did not use Heart, what is it called, Hardhome Home in Skyrim. I never played that. I never built a settlement in Fallout. I never did any of that stuff. Survival mechanics yeah. can add Ugh. some cool immersion. I don't like building it,
0: mechanics. It can't. I think that there's times, though, where games try and add survival elements and it doesn't really work. It depends on if the game was built ground up around it. Um Some people might have been frustrated with it, but the Pray for the Gods game had that winter survival thing where you could have warmer clothes that offered... you know It was kind of like, what are you going to trade off? Do you want more armor but less warmth? Do you want more warmth and more agility? And there's this thing where the whole area is a frozen wasteland, and sometimes storms will pop up and you've got to work your way through it. And... It's I think survival aspects can always either just be seen as this natural if you're into them, great and it's okay and it doesn't mind if you're not into them, it completely pulls you out of the game right and it does seem like a game for game basis for me because some games I love them I mean clearly which just is different because this is a survival game if we're being honest right so we're we're both talking about building mechanics and cyber survival aspects two things that I tend to not love either but guess what game I absolutely adored in and platinum and that I know you absolutely adored. The forest. Yeah, that's that see, game is literally building and survival aspects.
1: Right. So for for games like that, Minecraft, Dragon Quest, Builders, stuff like that, that are tailored around that experience, because you go in with that with that in mind, right? Uh, yeah, it, it works perfectly for me. Um, other games like where it's as a feature, I just tend to ignore the feature. It's not that I dislike it; I just tend to not use it.
0: Well, you kind of touch on something that I think is weird about current game design this idea that you make games that have all these different things in them so that hopefully a small segment of people in each camp will end up using them. Well, I think the problem that kind of comes from that, and I think I highlighted this in forbidden West. I essentially went through the entirety of forbidden West without using any of, I, I can't even remember what they're called. That's how bad they're that I, I didn't use them. But it was the thing that they used in the gameplay trailer where she's on the beach and you see the guy. She's got her staff and the guy comes up to her and she like does this animation where it like swoops around. You see her face, flips her thing around and then shoves this thing in. There's multiples of those that you can choose from and you have to build them up uh, with some meter and then you can use them. I never use them. And you know why? The game doesn't force me to use them. The game never does anything to make me have to use it. And there's a point where I feel like why are you spending time doing this if you're never going to craft any other mechanics around it that would strong arm me into a position where I need to think on my feet and be able to use that? Now, not all the time, but often enough. You know what I mean? Right. Like a good a good example in Forbidden West is the glider. 90% of the beginning parts of the game, when I first got it, I didn't even think to use it. But eventually, you start doing parts where you're in cauldrons or something, and there's a gap that's too big, and Aloy will say, ah, it's too far away. I think the only way I'm going to be able to get to it is with my glider. It's like, ah, you're forcing me to use it so that it becomes part of my repertoire. Yeah. And the game never does that for these little, whatever they're called, uh, focus something. That's probably off as well, too. But yeah. I think it's weird when games are like when, – when Fallout 4 is like we're going to have an entire building thing that's in the game, but it's not necessary at all. Then why put it in there? It's, I, I'm not going to say why because clearly it's just you're putting all these things. But it does feel like to an extent you're not crafting a game around your set of mechanics. Instead, you're just – you're putting a set of mechanics into a game and just being like use them if you want to, which I don't know which one I prefer. Do, I, do you want that or do you want a game that – it's full of mechanics that eventually you're going to have to brush against.
1: Right. I agree.
0: Hmm. Let's see. What else do we have over here? I got T Dog on yeah, go, a Discord. Go ahead. He says yeah.
1: escort missions and, un- and unstoppable cutscenes with timed missions.
0: Timed missions suck. It's time to escort missions t- suck even worse. Yes, but timed missions are really weird. 90% of the time, they're just frustrating. The other 10%, there was a magical window, right, to where the occasionally really well-designed timed mission can actually add to the sense of urgency and stake for a game. But I feel like most games completely screw that up. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this sense where I, you've probably had this. Have you ever been playing a game where the game, and movies do this too sometimes, the game sets up a story that's so urgent And if you don't do it now, people are going to die. Yes. But then you get to go run around and do whatever you want to for the majority of the time. It's like, so you're telling me people are going to die, but then I can go spend 20 minutes exploring this old warehouse to see what's inside of it.
1: That's the other side of little narrative dissonance
0: it is you know do you have games where it's like if we don't do this now it's gonna die but oh hey this guy needs my help to go find his brother that's missing in the woods i'm gonna go do that real quick because even though if i don't do the main quest everyone dies well if i don't do this quest one person dies so it makes way more sense one person is still gonna die that same person that you don't go help is still gonna die if you don't go help everyone yeah and that disconnect really sucks in games sometimes um I guess I'll throw some some benefit towards Forbidden West. One of the things I like about Forbidden West story is that there's a sense of urgency, but it's the game spells it out as it's urgent, but you have months to work on this. Oh, yeah. So when you have this sense of time that you can feel like you have moments that you can help individual people and build connections, that's better than a game that's like in 20 minutes, a bomb is going to explode. But then I'm going to swing around as Spider-Man for 30 minutes before I go do that bomb. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. Uh, but yeah, dude, unskippable cutscenes are probably one of the most infuriating things for replaying games.
1: Yep, I agree. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the time it does. If it does not have, or if it has unskippable cut unskippable cutscenes, I I won't play it. I won't really play it again.
0: Yeah. Here, one, one second. I'm going to go uh, pull it up real quick because while we're talking about escort missions, Blake, uh, the ghost of Blake Popes, he says, Escort missions are only as bad as they are because the NPC always walks slower than you run but faster than you walk. Do you agree? Um,
1: Yes and no. Okay, so that is a big problem why most of them are bad. But having to unexpectedly – because nine times out of ten, it's unexpectedly – babysit another player character or non-player character is the thought of having to do that and interrupt the pacing of gameplay is, is just as bad as the NPCs being bad because it's disruptive yeah, well,
0: to the game. Right, you can look at a whole game, right? The, the Last of Us 1. The Last of Us 1 is at its core an, a, a one long escort mission. A big old That's what the game is. But you never feel like it is. Right. And it's because they don't. And look, you can have dissonance there, right? Because technically there's all these points where Ellie's running around and she should be seen and it should throw people off. But the game is like. If we make it too realistic with the current technology we have, we we can't make the AI of Ellie nuanced enough to work. So we're just going to make her blind to the rest of the enemies so that we can keep this sense of pace and feeling going forward and never feel like we're weighing someone down with a true designed escort mission. Because the difference is like a lot of games are be escort missions a single moment. And then it's that the person in mind becomes... A Someone that you have to protect, and that Mark Shuts actually ended up expanding on that a little bit where he says where the n p c becomes a bullet magnet, and you have that point where it 's like that that is absolutely true. You have these escort missions where you 're supposed to move somebody through, but they can die, and then it 's like this is just frustrating. you are completely messing with the tone of your game, yep, and there are games that can do it. I mean Resident Evil Four is a beloved game that is essentially an <laughs> escort mission. A little worse than The Last of Us in terms of how it handles it, but you know, does its thing sometimes. Um, Actually, but the reason I even brought up <laughs> the reason I brought up Blake's point is I'm sure you've seen it. There's a couple of games lately that still have escort missions, and they try and fix this problem. And I do love when it happens, right? When you have, hey, come walk with me, player character, so I can tell you a story, and then you walk with them and they're way. Wait- you can't. You have to just do this thing where you run, and then you stop, and they catch up. Or you walk, and then you run a little bit, and then you walk, and you run a little bit, and you're like, okay, I'm going to catch up. There are games lately where it's been hold a button or move the stick, and the player, the NPC will speed match your character. I think Red Dead Redemption 2 did this, to where if you're riding on a horse and talking with somebody, if you start speeding up, they just speed up too. It does help yeah or but an escort mission at hand is still bad sometimes was it god of war that
1: had it so that every couple no what was it what game was it where i know arkham Asylum was, was really bad about it of like those of every now and then having to talk to somebody but then it's like you have to walk you can't run you can't walk fast it's walking pace
0: oh yeah games where they you normally have free control of of character speed but suddenly when you're talking to someone you have to take like very slow steps like Yes what? yeah theres a, there's a lot of games that do that trying to bring one to mind is is hard at the exact moment, but I do hate that games that suddenly stop your sense of pace entirely. I mean, to be fair, I think that the order does that to a degree where you're going through and you're walking and you're getting this lore for the area you're in, and oh, this is a bad part of town that has this going on, and it's interesting story stuff, but it's like, okay, but I can't move any quicker than this, and it's because the game wants the game wants to give you all this information without you being able to outrun. The, the the exposition, right? Yes. It's that weird idea of like, well, if he gets to the next spot too quickly, he won't hear all this exposition, which matters to the story. Sometimes it's where game design and, and and narrative design are at odds with each other. And it's like, you got to find a way to make this work. Uh, one of the great things that came after the order that really pushed through to the end of the gen is this idea of if for some reason you get interrupted while we're telling something, that the characters will come back to it as if they were interrupted. Like Uncharted 4 has this thing where if they'll be telling you, you'll be riding around in the wide linear section looking for treasure and trying to go to the next area. You can get out go find treasure. And if you get out or get into a gunfight in the middle of Sully or um, um, Sam telling you a story, when you get back in the book, like, oh yeah, I was telling you this, this, and this. And it's like, oh, that's, that's nice. It feels natural. It feels like if you and I were talking, we got, off for a second and then you came back like oh yeah you know i was talking about elden ring this is what you should do you have that moment and i like that in games i'm glad that they've kind of pushed themselves up for that and it's starting to get seen in even little double a games yeah it is a better move (laughs) Uh, classic here Saul. oh no joey mcpherson Says when you have to follow someone without getting caught, and you have to stay within a certain distance or you lose them. Yeah, old Grand Theft
1: Auto games did this a lot. So did Driver games. That was awful. Those tailing missions are stupid.
0: So bad. Oh, dude, I I think an old Spider-Man game did that too, right? Where like you're swinging through and you have to keep up with them, and if you like hit a wall or mess up, was it Spider-Man Two? Two? I think I don't it know. Was. That's, a beloved, that's a beloved game. That almost seems like that would be <laughs> weird for them to land on, but ugh. That is, that's a bad one. Alright, let's see. No, uh, I, I do, you had one a second out. ago? Um, Yeah, the one on Discord.
1: It is our good buddy and patron, Rude Days. He says, I've recently started noticing I'm not a fan of multiple skill trees like Horizon Forbidden West has. Playing Elden Ring right now, and I just like the... Uh, I just like being able to boost one category and seeing every stat that increases when you do so. Just feels simpler instead of having to go through every skill tree in Horizon to try and find out what stats and ability I need to feel like I'm getting stronger. Which that actually has been something that I I don't know if it's because of my of me playing Souls games as much as I have, but I have I have noticed that like when I play Days Gone, I do not like skill trees anymore. I, I don't know if it just feels outdated at this point, but it just feels so. Off.
0: I feel like the problem with skill trees or the potential problem with skill trees is all about the fact that game design to a degree kind of tries sticking with this thing where this RPG feel of how broad do you want to design this game to work. I think where a lot of that happens in Elden Ring is beginning first when you first start you get to kind of have a little bit of that with care with class creation so you get a class that kind of introduces you to mechanics and later you can build a c- character to be anything you want and I, I think that you're essentially right in this sense of elden ring is actually more of an old school skill trees were like the <laughs> as weird as this is even though it's not far off uh you ever know, like in computer language, there's, uh, there's the actual code base that you can look at and see, and then there's what's called a GUI, which is graphical yeah. user interface. And the GUI is what we all see because it's what you use to more simplistically tell everyone what you're going to get. And the idea is that you give people a visual representation of what it is to try and make it easier and more broadly approachable. But the downside to that is GUI can start to get far too complicated and, compl- and convoluted to where now it feels like it's too busy and you, you go right past. So if you think about what Elden Ring is, Elden Ring is essentially the first layer of GUI that people started doing where it's like it's still simple. All you're going to see is a set of values what those set of values, what those values pertain to. And then as you change them, you're going to see how they impact everything. And that's how you dynamically create a character. Because if you want to be able to cast spells, well, the spells you just get, it can equip, but you have to have a certain, you have to meet a certain level to be able to cast the spells, or you have to meet a certain level of faith, intellect or whatever, to have enough MP to cast these spells and it does end up feeling far more given. But the way that Horizon's designed from the ground up, it needs a skill tree because it's designed with a skill tree in mind. Because the skill trees are actually great. And there's more of them in this one. You can be stealthy. You can be a machine master. You can have it to where 90% of the time you hide, 90% of the time you roll into battle with another machine that you've overridden. And it will do all the attacking for you. And you can have multiple machines that you override. You could be a warrior where you're melee heavy for the first time. It does seem like open world games tend to
1: need <sighs> skill trees more. So open world, open world games that focus on a lot of different variations of gameplay, stealth, well, flight, yeah. stuff like that. Driving. Well, mechanics. And
0: I think Elden Ring also does this thing where it puts, it chooses to put some of those mechanics into the weapons. So instead of having to focus on this, it's like, well, we're just going to make the weapon. If you want to do this type of damage or class, you use this type of weapon. And I actually think that there's a way for Horizon to kind of do that. If you want to be stealthy, then be stealthy. And then you're going to have weapons that make less noise and are less noticeable and allow you to do certain things. If you want to be balls to the wall, then you're going to have weapons that put out massive damage but are loud and heavy and require more work for you to do. It could be done. It's It's at this point where thankfully it seems to be changing as we'll get into in the news, but Elden Ring is still a lightning in a bottle kind of surprise flash of a, of a more niche style becoming more acceptable. Whereas Horizon is the epitome of all these years of open world games from the biggest people in the industry, setting the expectation that you're going to have skill trees and So it's going to take Elden Ring is going to be the big interesting thing to see if Elden Ring will be the push that games need to design to be able to, in the open world section, be a little more like, what if we just leave it up to the players and put all the mechanics throughout different weapons and different things and then see if they can do it themselves? We'll see. Because that's not difficulty. That's no. an important thing to say. That's not difficulty, but it is personalization in the sense that you have full control of your character without having to dig into skill points. Right. Do you want to take or technically you, when you level, you get a skill point, right? Every time you level, you get a skill point. Technically more yes. or less. Yeah. But it's, you know, you have a lot more control over where it goes where it instead goes. of having to be like, well, I've cause you know, the other problem with skill trees and this technically exists in Elden Ring as well and all the Souls games in the form of soft caps, basically. But skill trees eventually hit a point where you've unlocked them all, but you still want to push further in that type of gameplay, but you can't because you've already maxed out the skill tree. Whereas Elden Ring says, well, here, if you want, if your skill tree is that you want to be a magician, then you just keep pumping all your stuff into intellect, I assume. is Yeah, intellect
1: it or faith or arcane. Okay, yeah.
0: So... Yeah, so you put you dump your skills into this, or so your skill points into this, and eventually you are going to hit a point where you stop seeing such big gains, but you still see little bits of gains, right? You have a soft cap, and then eventually, I don't think does do, does Elden Ring or Souls games have a hard cap ever? Um, hard cap being
1: like if you level up, you only get one point plus.
0: That's their form hard cap. Yeah, That's not too bad. You
1: could technically go to like to I don't know if it's past like I don't know what it is in Elden Ring. But I know it's like past like a certain point in Dark Souls Three. I might be wrong because I've never leveled up stats way way higher than they should. I think it takes multiple levels for them to go up one. But I don't remember if that's a thing or not. So yeah.
0: um, Well, either way, yeah, it does feel like you you get to push past. Whereas eventually, you can hit the walls of a skill tree. You can go okay. Well, I still want to do. I still want to have more stealth output or whatever. Which Horizon tries to deal with with. Levels right. Every time you level, you get base damage output increase stuff like that. But it still feels like you have less control over that. So we'll see. Uh, let's see. You want to do two more? Yeah. Um, grab.
1: Uh, why don't you grab them on Facebook?
0: I will. Um, I can't I'm gonna. See that. Well, yeah. Let's see the the ones from Facebook. I've already nabbed out. It was Blake's, Joey's, and then Mark going through and doing a little bit more of his. So. How about we do, I do Twitter? On Twitter. We haven't done any of those yet. Yeah, yeah, uh,
1: go ahead. Su- uh, Sweet grand Sersmo Jones, our buddy Ryan. He says, I love customization. The more extensive the customization a game has, the shittier it can be, and I'll tolerate it. I like to express myself that way. Uh, liveries on cars or liveries on cars, body kits and wheels, physical character appearances, armors and weapons. It gets stale. You If, if it gets stale, you can mix it up, which I actually agree. I like being able." personify myself and how exactly I like to be able to look in this game in it like Elden Ring Souls games have always had that um, a lot of like open world games like Skyrim being able to customize my armor exactly how I want it to look it's stuff like you know that. what's
0: you know what's weird <laughs> is that I like customization in that sense I don't really care about character creations because 90% of games you cover it up so I don't typically waste the time but I do like customization where it's like, I get to choose the way my guy looks from what he wears and stuff. You know what I mean? Um, but Skyrim's always an interesting thing because to be fair, unless you're playing in like VR where you can look down and see your player avatar, you don't really see your character at all on Skyrim, but you know, you look cool. It's, right. You know, it's like you see your arms, like you see the, the, your, your, um, whatever they're called. My, my hand is uh gauntlets. you You like your gauntlets coming down. Um, and you see your sword but you don't really see much of yourself otherwise in that game unless you play it third person and as we've established you and I I think both play it entirely in first person true like, it is uh, weird
1: though cuz it's like i don't know it is more immersive even in first person
0: oh it's yeah yeah it, cuz it's it's a lot like putting clothes on where you're like i like this shirt but i don't really get to see myself in the shirt throughout the day right it's just the way i want It's the way I want to feel that other people are portraying me or, or, you know, are perceiving me rather. Um, You know, this is a really weird answer, Ryan, because I love that you answered this in the most positive way and almost like a reverse way. Because we say, what do you hate? And you tell us what you love. Therefore, you tell us that you essentially hate when games don't allow you to customize. (laughs) It's just you went a very interesting way around it. And I appreciate it. Uh, Let's see let's look at the... So we've already talked about building. I'm going to go back to um, finalize out on Josh Ayers. uh, Longtime listener, longtime friend, longtime patron. Thanks, Josh. He says, it's trivial, but I hate bad trophy design. I'm not going to put 400 hours into your multiplayer. I'm not going to replay the game seven times, maybe two to three, but I'm not going to be able to beat the game without being hit. Looking at you, Devil May Cry 5. And this is weird because I agree because I enjoy trophies and there's almost always these games that are like, that is such a hard thing to where basically it's like they're setting the value for their, the trophy trophy design trophies in general, it's like there's a trophy market and each game gets to set the value for their trophies. And some games are just like, we're our trophies are going to be the most valuable to where if you see someone's got the platinum in this game, you know that, that that platinum means more than the platinum in My Name is Mayo, which right. pretty much all platinums mean more than My Name is Mayo. But point <laughs> being, you, you know, if you see someone get a, a platinum in Horizon Forbidden West versus getting a platinum in Dishonored, those are very different things. Yeah. They, uh, Dishonored is significantly harder to platinum. And it's weird because I hate. I guess to me, what I call bad game design or bad trophy design is when you have a trophy list that is 99% easy, casual, normal play that you'd have fun doing. And then one trophy is just like, this is going to be the hardest thing in the world. I at least appreciate the games like Dishonored are like our whole trophy section to a degree is going to be tough. Like once you start getting into golds, these are going to be hard trophies. Beat the game without being seen beat the game without killing anybody. And some of these trophies you can stack, but they're hard. You know what I mean? It's kind of the point. And they can also give you incentive to replay games that are fun, that you enjoy replaying like people do with Dishonored or like Saul does with Dark Souls three, you know, and like I did with mortal shell, it did give me the incentive to replay mortal shell, a game I really loved. Um, but there are bad trophy designs. My go-to bad trophy design, I still think, is Destiny One's uh, Flawless Raider because it's a trophy that has nothing to do with you—absolutely nothing to do with you. Yeah, and you—you can—you cannot die the entire raid, which I think is what the trophy should be. And you'll be—you complete a raid without dying. Yeah, but but it's that no one in your fire team can die. It's a very different trophy. It's true, but you know the the only upside to it. And this is a weird analog. It wasn't for dying, but it was a moment where we all got the platinum at the same time, essentially. Or we all got the trophy at the same time. Whenever Chris and I needed to do the Grandmaster for Destiny 2 to get the platinum, it was that feeling of like, we're doing it together. Now, the thing is, is that even if he wasn't there, or even if he died or didn't complete it somehow, but I did, I would have still gotten the trophy. But it did feel good to get the trophy together. So the maybe the benefit... For flawless Raider and Destiny One is that when you get it, you have up to six people who are just like, "Fuck yeah, we got it, we did it." But I don't think that's worth making a trophy essentially unattainable for a lot of people. <laughs> right? No, I, I agree. Any any bad trophies? Saw so, that you hate.
1: All rings trophy in Dark Souls
0: three. What about sound shapes? <laughs>
1: Um, that, the fact that those trophies were RNG. Well, okay, no. The game was RNG, which in turn made the trophies RNG. I agree, yeah. So yeah. that's that's still one of my proudest Platinums. Sound Shapes and Titan Souls. And Bloodborne. You, you know, those three are my top three. A,
0: a game that I know you haven't Platinums, but I will say the one part of... And I loved Platinuming the Forest. Everything about the Platinum Forest was great until it got to the... Destroy Chop,
1: what was it chopped so many trees or something?
0: A thousand trees or something ridiculous. I mean ridiculous. It, it, I think it was more than that. I, I almost gotta look it up. Hold on. The forest tree trophy. I've got to I've got to figure it out. Uh let's see. Yeah, cut down one thousand trees. And that doesn't sound like that many, but in the course of like and, and oh here the problem was that you had to do it basically in a single run. And it's unsure if that's because of bad trophy design or a bug or what. But essentially I had to hop onto a world and I could not stop cutting trees until <laughs> until 1000 because if you get off and come back in it doesn't keep a rolling count like it should. That is that was rough.
1: Yeah, I remember that now. I had actually forgot that, I, that was how that you had to do it.
0: If it was if it was just cut down a thousand trees, fine. Because there's a trophy in Gran Turismo for drive a certain amount of miles. Uh, There's one in Dirt Five as well. But that's just saying play the game, and you're naturally going to drive so many miles. True. And it keeps up with it over time. If this was, hey, play the game, and eventually you'll cut down a thousand trees. Dude, by the time considering how much we played it, we would have hit a thousand trees just naturally. There was no way that in a single play session we were going to cut down a thousand trees without that being the only focus.
1: Yeah, Bad that's no. Nah. Yeah, that's you have to like set out to do that.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right, well, guys, thank you all for the community's take. And Also, we're going to kind of have a, a, a moment here because we were having a behind the scenes discussion about write ins, and there's no time like the present to kind of clue you guys in. And see what you think, because I think the best thing to do with this show is to keep it community driven, because you guys are the reason that we continue to get together and do this every week. I mean, we enjoy it, but without an audience, there's not really much of a reason to do it. Uh, we've always felt like Communities Take offered a different way than a lot, of comp- a lot of shows do it to where it's kind of us giving you an inciting action of, hey... We're going, to, we're going to push you and say, what do you like about this? And give you an opportunity to just answer it without having to take it upon yourselves to find a time to be like, oh, yeah, this is an interesting idea. Let me write in and give them points. Plus, a lot of shows that do write-ins and stuff do them behind. You have to be a patron or something, which I understand when you grow enough. But we're at a point where we're, that we're not there. We're not to the point where we have to worry about having too much coming in. So how do you guys feel about Community's Take? Do you enjoy it in the current way that it is? Would you like to see it become something a little different? And would you guys like to see it either superseded and replaced by the idea of write-ins? Or would you like us to find a way to bring write-ins alongside communities Take and look at one written-in question per month or per uh, sorry, sorry per month but per episode that may allow us to kind of get topics from you guys and have something to discuss and every episode will have one community driven topic basically we're going to throw it out to you guys Saul, do you have anything you'd like to add to that no that's that's pretty much all it okay so let us know this is your moment your call to action let us know I might even put this out to give you, again, to put a way out there for a receptacle for you to throw it all in. But if you want to take it upon yourself and show us that you do want write-ins and you would love to see them, then take it upon yourself and go ahead and reach out and tell us without us having to give you a call to action. Uh, But without further ado, I think we're going to go ahead and move into the news. And I'll tell you, the news this week is uh, not the most crazy thing in the world. There's a lot of stuff, but there's not as much stuff that I think warrants a lot of talking about
1: no so i'm gonna actually go take this second to go use the bathroom real quick since i'm not gonna go for it i see my notice for my reactions i don't really have much to say about most of the things in here so i'll be right back
0: i got you all right so the first four pieces are essentially entirely wrapped around the idea of games crossing over into other media so with that in mind as we see being a trend lately let's knock those out real quick first thing Tekken becomes the next game to be given the anime treatment by Netflix with a new series following series protagonist Jen Kazama as he learns to fight called Tekken Bloodline. The series is set to release sometime in 2022. Uh, again, it's, it's anime style. Um, so if you're into Tekken in terms of the world but never wanted to deal with the fighting aspects, this might be a way for you to get in touch with some of the lore and story and be part of that. Uh, next up, still on Netflix, they've announced that their Resident Evil live action series will be coming July 14th with a season of eight episodes that are an hour long each that are, excuse me, written by Supernatural writer Andrew Dabb and starring an actor who's quite familiar with working in games, Lance Reddick, as you may know him from uh, Destiny 2. Uh, he's also in both of the Horizon games and he's in Remedies. uh. Quantic, uh, Quantum Break. There you are. Quantum Break. The, also a great game from Xbox. So if you haven't played it and you have means to play it, I implore you to do so. I really enjoyed it. And it was the idea of mixing games with live action that we've seen a few games kind of try and tackle as we were going into the Xbox One generation. And I think it really nailed it and knocked it out of the park. Uh, really cool. Next thing up is still TV related. Another game is getting live action treatment as well as Team Asobo's wonderful A Plague Tale series, which, if you remember, I absolutely gushed about. Whose next game, Requiem, is set for release sometime this year, is being adapted for a TV series with Inglorious Bastards assistant director Matthew Turi helming the series. Um, No date or anything like that over its very early stages. Uh, Next up, Elden Ring has become one of the fastest-selling new IP ever, with Bandai Namco confirming that the title has hit 12 million sales worldwide since its February 25th release. For context, Dark Souls 3, another game from FromSoft, took four years to hit 10 million units uh, sold. It's no surprise then that Bandai Namco has then talked About the IP, quote, expanding beyond the realm of games, close quote, implying the potential for anime adaptations, as we've seen other Bandai Namco products do, movies or more. Who knows exactly where that might end? We may see comic books. We may see graphic novels. We could see pretty much anything. We'll see how it ends up going. Maybe even see a card game. Who knows? Uh, That moves us into non-TV related, but kind of similar in a different different fashion. So Supermassive Games revealed The Quarry, which many are hailing as the spiritual successor to their PS4 exclusive Until Dawn. It takes place at a summer camp where everything goes horribly wrong, much as you would expect. Much like their other games, a Hollywood-studded cast sees David Arquette, Justice Smith, Brenda Song from The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, (laughs) and uh, more play the protagonist and antagonist. The game will feature co-op where up to eight people can join together and either make decisions as a group or each take control of a single counselor to singularly control their own fate. This game is set to release June 10th for current and last-gen consoles and will cost $69.99 on PS5. And now, Saul, I have a question for you. I know you don't have much you want to say about this, but I am a little curious about one thing that's kind of like a side topic here. A, I assume that you'll probably play this game because I know you liked Until Dawn, even if you don't have much to say about it right now. Um, but the bigger thing is, when did you come into Until Dawn price point wise? Do you remember? No, I don't. Uh, like a year, it, it was, was like, eventually a free PS Plus game. It, Do you think you might have played it there? No, I don't. I didn't play it for free. It was like okay, a year so, it,
1: a year within it coming out.
0: So you probably got it when it dropped down to twenty which is an interesting thing here because the game wasn't really that marketed by PlayStation. It had a $60 price tag. And within about a month of it coming out, within the first month, it dropped down to 40 Then the game started seeing more sales, significantly more sales. And then eventually it dropped down to that PlayStation $20 area that most of these games go to. And I feel like that's really where the game found its love. It got a lot of people playing it at a, at a better price point. I the biggest thing about this. I'm excited. I think this game looks cool. I think it. I loved Until Dawn, and I think that if this is even remotely similar, and it looks to be, that I'll have a good time with it. I don't. I bought Until Dawn at sixty dollars, and I enjoyed it enough. But I think when you look at how the market speaks, and the fact that the Man of Madon games that uh, that Supermassive also makes that are in a similar vein to this, still only come out at around forty dollars. I don't know how this game performs at all at $70. And so that's for the PS5 version. The PS4 version will be $60. But I you feel like they would have learned with Until Dawn that they're not gonna really see movement in the market until they hit that forty dollar price point. A similar game to kind of look at for reference, and it was signif- it was longer all in all honesty. Um Detroit Become Human. That's a game that just sold 6.5 million units. It's just now hit that number, and that's years after release and and releasing on PC. And that's a game that I also feel like really found most of its life after it dropped price. So what do you think this is? Do you think this is just get as much as they can for that $70, $60 price point, and then within a month drop it down to 40 and watch sales actually do something?
1: I I don't know. I really don't know. I, I the, It almost feels like sabotage, but it almost feels like maybe they're going to see if the hardcore fans are going to support it at 70. I don't really know.
0: To me, it'd be like one of those things of like, you know, we, when we talked about prices going up to games in general from 60 to 70, I feel like every price bracket should have moved accordingly. So games that used to sit at that $40 price point and perform really well, like Ratchet and Clank did, move up to 50. Take that same step, but look at your place in the market and understand, hey, we perform... uh, Ratchet & Clank on PS4 performed amazingly at $40. I'm really curious because Sony haven't quite come out and said, how did Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart at $70 perform as well? It was a next-gen only game, so probably not. But even if you account for users out in the wild, how much better comparatively did Rift Apart sell... Or, sorry... It could be ripped apart, but how much better did each co- did one or the other sell at that point in its life based off of its price? And it just kind of feels like at this point, this is a game that should have come in at fifty dollars. It's two K publishing it, so I don't know. Part of me thinks that maybe it has to do with that. I'm surprised it's two K. Maybe they could have gotten away with this being a private division game, which is two K's uh indie arm or not indie, but you know, kind of double A arm that they're doing that put out like the outer worlds and stuff like that. Maybe they could have done that there and put a fifty, but I just I'm I'm gonna be really curious to see how this game does and performs that way. You have the argument that if the originally supermassive wasn't really known before until dawn, but I would even say right now supermassive is not that big as you see with Man of Madon not just necessarily lighting the world on fire sales wise.
1: Yeah, it's it's rough. I don't know. It's to me a fan of of Until Dawn. What are you going to make this game have? That's going to have the value of $70 because $60 for Until Dawn is rough. But then again, I would look back and say that for me it was worth the $60 experience. But I don't know if I can make that as a general statement for the majority of the people that are going to play it.
0: Yeah, and I think if you look at the fact that the game didn't blow up until it went lower, and the fact that Bandai Namco with their Man of Madon series is constantly pricing it at around like 40 bucks, if I'm not mistaken. Hold on. Man of Madon price. And that's just one of them, but um, you have all these ones that they've been coming at. But I want to say Man of Madon launched at $30. All right. And let's look at Man of Madon, how long to beat? And the reason I say that is, if I were, if you were me, uh, or if you not that, do you agree rather that until dawn's a roughly eight-hour experience? Yeah, does that sound about right to you? Seven or nine hours, right. somewhere in there. Okay, so Man of Madon, if you do the main story plus extras, not completionist, is roughly five and a half hours. Oof. Until Dawn was roughly seven to eight hours. And of course, you can replay these games to see other aspects, but I don't feel like most people will. But either way, I'm not talking about my personal valuation of this so much as I'm talking about the market's valuation of this and the the consumers that are willing to buy it. Man of Dawn launched at $30.00 for roughly two hours less of content than until dawn did and until dawn even at a slightly more thing did not really start doing anything sales wise until 40 dollar price point yeah i have a really hard time believing that this new game is going to be longer than eight to ten hours nor do i think it probably could justify being longer than eight to ten hours before it starts to kind of be like yeah you've stayed you've overstayed your welcome and yet they're charging more than double of what Man of Madon is. Now, essentially, if it is a 10-hour game, it could uh, be viewed as double the value of... or double the content of Man of Madon. But, I don't know. I'm curious to see how it performs. I just think it's a really wild price point. That's the only thing for me. Yeah. I think if this was $49.99... Then you'd be golden. I mean, I'm I'm going to buy it at $70. i will just tell you, I am. But I have enough I, really i'm gonna buy it at 70 with playstation rewards points so i have no real stake in the game right this is not my money this is just reward points that i'm gonna use towards any game so i think it's interesting uh okay so the next piece of news up is something that you do want to talk about fans of playstation's latest exclusives who love the soundtracks can pick up vinyl of returnal ghost of tsushima and ratchet and clink rift aparts official soundtracks as playstation partners with milan records for a limited release of these across multiple colorways saul what are you excited about here buddy i liked it
1: solely for the fact to say that i i think this is a fantastic idea and i don't know why that they're just not doing this
0: yeah i feel like um it's not limited run is it there's it's not limited run no. there's a, a eight eight bit in well, isn't there like uh What's that company? I am Eight Bit. I am Eight Bit. Yeah, they have been doing some for a while, where they have vinyls for video game uh, soundtracks, and I think that like right now they have like a bunch of Persona ones, um, Diablo two soundtrack. Yeah, Persona five, Persona twenty fifth anniversary box set. So that's where I got the kind of um, done this. Hyper
1: Light Drifter physical version
0: oh yeah okay they've done this for a little bit I don't, uh, but typically it used to be with this i hated it too because you'd never listen to it even though they have beautiful soundtracks do you remember the journey vinyl that had the the wanderer from journey yeah, that was across IM8 the 8-bit. vinyls as a picture disc it was cool yeah that was but i am bit but if you know anything about picture disc they have terrible sound quality <laughs>
1: yeah i think it's more if you of,
0: existed this weird thing where it's like is that just visual or do you want it to be visual because you can make vinyls pretty without having to ruin their sound quality um i just it, it feels weird i think that for me i would prefer like i'm glad it's here journey's 10th anniversary was last week and there's a journey 10th anniversary vinyl that's just a black vinyl so it's cool because it has a beautiful slipcase for it and you can just listen to the wonderful soundtrack it just feels weird when uh, gaming things are like, oh, do you love the music? Well, here, buy this terrible version of the music because it looks good. You're completely disconnecting from what the point of the property was to begin with. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's interesting. But I'm 8 bits good stuff. I've heard good things about their products. So uh, let's see. Next thing up with... Uh, Some heavy rumors of Kojima working on a cloud-based game for Microsoft, as we heard a while back. It's interesting to see the much-loved creator getting love from Sony as they've allowed him to use a prototype tech. uh, It's like a teleconferencing prototype tech that's not available publicly yet. uh, That he can use to oversee motion capture sessions for his new game that are taking place in the U.S., from his Japanese headquarters. And he's been tweeting about it and talking about it working fantastically and and really helping with game development speed and not having to travel a bunch. Also the capture stage appears to be Sony Santa Monica's, which while we've seen the space rented out by third party studios before resident evil eights cutscenes were done there. For example, it could spell that his partnership with PlayStation for games might not quite be over either way the game is being developed and marketed in a very different way than Death Stranding was, where as soon as Death Stranding was kind of around, we got to hear about it. Instead, this game seems to be being developed and worked on under the table, like most games are, and will wait to be revealed when it's ready. Instead of having the Death Stranding every year, you know you're going to get something about Death Stranding that's both exciting and frustrating. Uh, How do you feel about all that, Saul? I,
1: okay. I think... And I, I promise you, I mean this in a really good way, but I think that Kojima always, always tries to incorporate some cool gimmicks into things. And I'm just excited to see what the cool gimmick he's going to try to incorporate this into this is.
0: So you're just mainly excited about the new game. The fact that he's working on something new.
1: Yes. And the gimmick that's going to come with the cloud process.
0: That's if this is a Microsoft game, and that's if the this bigger rumor thing that's going to be, be weird is, well, this isn't a rumor. I mean, are you are you talking about that? Well, the, the Microsoft rumor, yeah, the Microsoft rumor, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's seeming to be evidence pointing toward it, but also it' nothing that really finalized to say that they've done anything. I'm gonna tell you right now, I feel like Microsoft would do exactly what Sony did whenever they got uh, whenever they were able to confirm that Kojima's next game was going to be exclusively through them take a moment to go ahead and put a video out with somebody from Microsoft t- talking to Kojima and being like we're not ready to talk about what the project is but we we'll want you all to know that that Kojima's productions next game is going to be exclusively through Microsoft yeah or published by Microsoft there's no way in hell in my opinion and I could turn out to be wrong that Microsoft would get this in the bag and not announce it I just I don't see it as a company that's always needing that Japanese feel, or I'll say needing, they're, they're getting better, but they they want that. They, they want to be able to say, yes, we can service Japanese gamers. And look, we're working with Japanese creators. They would stand to gain a bunch from saying, hey, we're working on a game, but we're not ready to show it. I think. So yeah. we'll see. Um, it'll be curious to see, too, it might be that just PlayStation really, generally, just respects him and wants to keep a good relationship at all times with him. He won an award in Japan uh, that I cannot, for the life of me, remember the name, but it's essentially a you know prestigious award for being a creator from Japan for some. Yeah, someone. I forgot what it's um, called too. And one of the first things he put out after the re- after he was given the reward or uh, the award was that he was sent flowers and some other stuff and some chocolate or whatever from Sony um, Japan. And what, you know, the president or whatever, somebody who's over there. So they clearly have a long working relationship, and this could just been a friendly move that was done. Or this could be Sony make this could be Sony talking about the fact that they're still working with him. It is interesting, and I'm not I don't want to look too far into it and get into that weird fanboy territory, but it is going to be interesting in the long run to see if his game is with one or the other manufacturer, or if he's going third party and this game is just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to see. I could see see Kojima getting to use Sony Santa Monica's soundstage just because PlayStation's like, yeah, you're our our homie, basically, and no one's using it right now, so go ahead. Uh, But it's it's interesting because Sony Santa Monica's soundstage is used for a lot of PlayStation exclusives. Yeah. So for them to – they don't tend to work stuff in very often that's not them. They could make an exception for Kojima as they did with Capcom, but also Capcom had marketing rights with PlayStation. So it's almost like if you're using PlayStations, there's probably some benefit that they're getting out of this is what it kind of seems like, you know?
1: Yeah, I'd be curious as to, as to see what it is and what it and, and when when we'll see it and what it is. Because yeah. I think it will it, all line up with rumors or not at all. It's hard to tell. Well,
0: and you know, the the talk about Kojima Productions opening a satellite studio elsewhere, is there the potential that he is working on a game for both Microsoft and Sony? Right. Seems unlikely because Kojima really strikes me as the kind of guy that likes to work on one project at a time and be really hands down, like, you know, head down, hands playing around in the mud with his creation to figure out exactly how he wants it. I don't think he would be the person to want to try and direct two games at the same time even if one's taking a backseat to the other. I would be
1: curious if he ever has directed two games at the same time. I don't think he has.
0: Well, you think about all the games he's directed. Didn't he do both of the zone of the Enders games?
1: He did one for sure. I don't think he did two. Maybe he did. Let me see.
0: <laughs> so maybe he did. But at the same time, that was a point when game development was like a year or two versus game development these days being normally somewhere in the ballpark of three to four for a shorter game and five for bigger games, you know,
1: by the way, anybody, y'all need to go play both Zone of the Enders games. They're fantastic. Yeah, he was, the, he was the director of 2 as well.
0: Yeah, and those were happening kind of similarly paced to Metal Gear Solid. But again, we're looking at a time when de- game development was a lot quicker. I mean, Death Stranding, in all for all intents and purposes, was actually developed very quickly, if you really want to talk about it. I mean, Death Stranding was announced and released within, what, three years? Three, yeah, I think almost four years, but I might be wrong on that. Wasn't it? But even then, Death, the the first announcement trailer for Death Stranding, they had barely even been working on the game at that point. It's like he had landed on what he wanted it to be, and finally landed on an engine, and then kind of that was it. So it's it's interesting to see if he's going to turn something around relatively soon, because the last Death Stranding released in twenty nineteen, right? So three years would be November of this year. So would that be around the time that we're starting to hear about his next game or what? I'm curious. Cause he had two games in a row, medical solid five and, um, death stranding where I feel like they were announced a little too early, but then eventually, re- you know, release. But both of them kind of had that thing of, they were, they were known for a long time. And I think, I think it's weird with, it's weird with medical solid five because five felt like longer because of ground zeros. I don't think five would have felt like such a journey to get to release if it wouldn't have been for them announcing, revealing and releasing ground zeros and then doing five and eventually releasing five. It felt like five was in the, the gamer consciousness for like a five year window, even if it probably really wasn't that, you know? Right. So.
1: It was, yeah, it was June of 2016. So it was three years. From announcement ah, to launch.
0: Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, it's pretty good. Three and a half years if you really want to talk yeah. about it. But that's still that's not bad. Um we'll see. We will see how it ends up going. All right. Next thing up, this is a big one. Another state of play came and went this week and brought with it our first look into Hogwarts Legacy gameplay with a deep dive of its systems and what to expect from the setting and time in which the game takes place within the greater lore of Harry Potter and a holiday 2022 release window. Now, first thing I want to bring up here is I feel like this goes exactly in line with what I said about the last state of play in which Sony made it exactly clear as what you were going to get here and delivered exactly what they said. So... That's interesting, but this is also the first time we've had two state of plays so close to each other. I feel like, yeah, I can't think of another example. Anyway, Saul, what do you think about Hogwarts Legacy? I think it looks phenomenal. I that is. Are you a you're a big Harry Potter fan, right? Yeah, I think unlike me, you've read all the books. I have, yeah,
1: multiple times. Not a big yeah, fan of the expanded universes they've been doing. I'm don't really care for that at all. Um, oh, like the new books and film? Yeah, I, just, I don't care um, for those at all, really. Um, so yeah, this is this is kind of like back in like 2002. You had that idea in your head of like having a game in which you could uh, create your own wizard and uh, go go to school with them, and it looks really good. Uh, it looks way better than I ever imagined it looking. I was it's really weird because it,
0: it it looks just as good as I felt like the initial reveal trailer tried promising, but at the same time, there was that skepticism of like there's, there's never been this type of Harry Potter game, so yeah, it seems like it would be hard for them to almost knock it out of the park, date like first try, it, but it, it, it looks, looks like, like they absolutely yeah. are.
1: So I guess I'll have to see from yeah. you know launch if it's going to keep that or not,
0: yeah. I like these deep dives where it's like, we're going to go in and really talk about the systems of the game, let you see what to expect from gameplay, what to expect from the lore time period. And even that idea of getting to kind of talk with the developers and see their love. Because I feel like when you're working with a licensed IP, it helps a lot. And I, even without licensed IP, because you watched the Vidox for Witch Queen, right? From no. Bungie? No. You didn't? No. Nah. Okay. I watched one of them. And and it felt very similar to the, the, the post-reveal thing here where they were talking with the developers about the game. And there's something I really like, even though I'm not a massive Harry Potter fan, I do enjoy Harry Potter. Um, there's something I enjoy about looking at a licensed property or just people working on something and getting to kind of punch in and show the people who are working on the game. And watching them be like visibly excited. Like you can kind of just see them like kind of jittering and be like, I'm so excited that I get to work on this. And they get to talk about it. And they get to kind of show people who are fans of the IP that they get it. And that they're fans too. And that they're taking this seriously while also getting to show how excited and giddy they are. Which I think helps kind of connect fans to these people that are making the games. I think, the, I think you remember it. We've had this conversation really early days of this show. But early PS4, Xbox One days, when Sony was all over Twitter and social media, just letting everybody from Shuhei to everybody just kind of post willy-nilly and talk about what they want and give them a personality. And I feel like anytime you can give gaming and things and corporate people a personality and let really people see them for who they are. You can help kind of close that gap that I feel like you saw with like Cyberpunk and all these games where they re- they release a game and announce a game and it's just cold and corporate. And when there's issues, people attack people because it's like you don't get to see that human element, right? And while I don't, I hope this game doesn't have that. I feel like a lot of goodwill can be instilled with people when you look at something as cold and lifeless as a corporation, and you put faces to it, and you let people see the into the lives of the people. And that's why you have Sony people that love Shuhei, but don't really care for Jim Ryan because Jim Ryan doesn't really put himself out there, but Shuhei always has. And so you have that thing of like, I feel like whether I really do or not, that I understand who Shuhei is as a person and as a gamer and where his respect in this industry lies. And you don't see that from Jim Ryan. That's why Jim Ryan's old quotes about, I was watching someone play Gran Turismo 2 the other day and it looked like hot garbage. That's not a sentence that you would hear somebody who respects the lineage of gaming say. It's a sentence that is true. Would it be fair? Does that game look bad? Does that game look bad now? His, Absolutely it does. His 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 view
1: on Gran Turismo, or will I say that, but the live service look aspect <laughs> of it's not going so
0: well. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, those statements are bad because up until that point, we started hearing these things. We didn't look at Jim Ryan as a person. We looked at him as an executive, you know? yeah, And that's a problem. I think part of the reason that a lot of people liked Sean Layden or at least put up with him, even people who didn't necessarily love him, is that when he went up on stage, there was this feeling – I liked him wearing T-shirts. I liked him wearing a medieval T-shirt and wearing a Crash T-shirt. And even when he was wearing a suit, he would just come out and talk to talk. And he, you'd be like, he gave me Reggie vibes. And even though I'm not a huge Nintendo fan, if you didn't like Reggie, it's like, what were you doing? Reggie was just an energetic, fun dude who went out there and loved gaming. You know, it's like... There's so much that you can benefit from that that I'm so glad that the state of play decided to kind of show that behind the scenes while everyone's in. Let these developers talk about the game and show their excitement because it can only do beneficial things, in my opinion. Yeah. Because you can still control it, but you get to get that sense out there. Uh, I think it looks really cool. The entire time I was playing it, and I doubt that you did because I know that late three or late PS 360 gen, um, you were kind of just coming back around into PlayStation mm-hmm. for the most part. Um I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier in the week, but there's this game that I'm curious if anybody who's listening has played that was a PS Move game, and it was doomed to the PS move the PS Move being a limited system with limited support. But it was a wonderful game. And if you go and watch any gameplay, any of the trailers, Hogwarts Legacy looks like the what that game brought to the table expanded tenfold and put into a more rich backstory. But that game was cool and it added this element of kind of fulfilling your role, right? You're talking about, you know, I'm a sorcerer and I'm going to go and I'm going to build up and I'm going to be the sorcerer. Now, you didn't get to make your own sorcerer, but you came in as this kid who's a a young apprentice and he ends up stumbling into something that gives him a bunch of power. And it was fun because you got to move around. That was back when the PS Move had the little kind of nunchuck design with the analog stick so you could still move your character. Yeah. And you would flick around the spells with your hands so you like spell them out you know how you kind of always talk about uh castlevania aria of sorrow yes and how cool it felt to draw the runes to do the stuff it's exactly that it was like i need to do a spell and so this spell requires me to move my hand this way and do this and i love that it's so good and there's a part of me that like for as good as this looks. I really hope even if for a little group of people that they have Sony in their back pocket being like listen when we when we release PSVR2 make either the entire game or a section like a like a uh, oblivion uh coliseum section where it's just you and another you and other players that you're going against inside of like a, a, an arena to where it's PSVR supported. It's first person. You get to move around your thing and flick spells with your wand and voice commands and stuff like that. And I think that would be sweet. Yeah. Um. Something here that I'm curious. You you played Fable, the original Fable, right. and I think if I'm not mistaken, you love the original Fable as well. Did the way that they showed this game give you Fable vibes? No, because it totally did for nah. me. No, maybe I, I need to rewatch I it. it. I didn't watch it all,
1: yeah. um, but. No, from the couple of clips that I watched of it, uh, no, not to me.
0: So did you see any of the parts where it's kind of like walking around and seeing the students talk and stuff no. like that? Or did you watch mostly like combat? No, I just I skipped yeah. through
1: a lot because I, I wanted to get like impressions and I wanted to stop right there.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I know that you like to see as little as possible in games. That's why I was curious if you'd watch the Witch Queen Vidox. Yeah, but I don't
1: ever watch Vidox for Bungie either. Like not a single one. I never have and I probably never will.
0: <laughs> I think that's the first one I've ever watched from them. So, you know, uh, but with that in mind, if you do go back and watch, I don't, you know, it depends on if you want to, there's little parts where I think what it really is. And we've talked about this with like a uh, overlord being one of the only other games that springs to mind when I think about fables, unique charm and sense of humor to me. And I think it's that quirky British humor, you know, like that, I think that's what it is for me that gives me those vibes because you see like little things, but even visually, I feel like there's elements that make me think of this could be Fable if they really like, you know, whenever they finally show off the new Fable, it could look similar to this luscious environments that have this high fantasy twinge to them. I think that if you look at some of what Harry Potter is and some of what Fable is, you remember in Fable how like the trolls would like spring up from the ground and be like rocks and moss tied together with like roots and stuff? Yeah. And it looks, but in like a high fantasy way, Chris and I were talking about like the Mandrakes are in the game, right? Uh, And typically when you look at Mandrakes in like the lore and stuff, as we've looked into and Chris and I had a conversation about, uh, Mandrakes are typically seen in their baby form where they're not fully grown and that their shrieks um, basically render you unconscious. Yeah. So... I was like, you know, I could see a very fable like moment that would be really cool and fit in with Harry Potter lore of having like a full grown mandrake that you run into out in the bat the wild and where it shrieks can kill you if you're not prepared and don't have protection on. Um same same basic idea. So the game would account for it, but I just have a visual of like watching a full grown big giant mandrake pop out of the ground like roots and just pop out kind of like the trolls do in Fable. That would I'm be excited. Pretty cool. I'm excited. Um Holiday 2022 release. That's surprising. Uh, it is it's a little surprising. That's what I was about to ask.
1: Do you think it yeah, will? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's just the way the way things go nowadays with the way games get announced and shown.
0: Well, part of my curiosity behind this is that if you want to call, call this holiday window, let's say that this game releases... When they say holiday, let's let's start holiday season in November. Okay. Does that seem fair? Sure. All right. We're only about seven months out. Seven, eight months, right? Maybe nine. I guess that, that would be it. Like October, November would be about nine months from now. Um, I feel like that's close enough, and they showed us enough, that this could be one of the first games in a while that really does release by year end without getting pushed back. Because you think right now, you can't... It's not pushed back so long as it releases in 2022, right? Because they gave it a vague window. Yeah. This game won't be considered pushed back until 23. Yeah. Of course. But I think that there's a chance, as much as I agree with you, they seem to be coming from a position of confidence. And I think this might be one of the first games that really has its nail on, on where it wants to land and will land. Then the answer just comes down to By doing so, is the game stable and ready to go? And it needs to be. There's no reason to to risk that, right? So we'll see how it ends up going.
1: Yeah, I'm hopeful, but I'm not that hopeful.
0: Okay, the last... piece of news is going to kind of transition into the topic at hand for the episode. And unfortunately, Chris isn't here. Cause I know Chris has a very heated standpoint from it as well and wanted to be able to talk about it, but we'll talk about it. While it's pertinent and then let Chris fill in his position if he wants next week. It's all about Gran Turismo. And as we talked about earlier in the episode, there were some, there's some issues that came about and essentially what happened is the game went down this week for update 1.07 and update 1.07 did not end up happening midway through server maintenance when it was supposed to be down they announced that they were extending it they weren't exactly sure when it was going to end and that it was due to an issue that they've or really they didn't say much they just said that they found an issue they're working on it later it was revealed that there was an issue that apparently had the game break boot on PS4 and PS5 that was not discovered for some reason in testing and and all that for the update. And so instead of pushing it out and risking compromising people's save files, they decided to stop, work out a patch 1.08 that fixed the issue that came here and then launch the game. I think if I'm not mistaken, the game was down for roughly 30 hours. Uh, and this brings up a big problem. I already had this discussion when they first announced that it was an always-online game uh, with Ryan, uh, one of our longtime friends of the show, who I know is a massive Gran Turismo fan, about the fact that this game, you don't feel connected 90% of the time. There's no real reason the game needs to be on all online, right? There's features that utilize the always online, like dynamic uh, used car the used car lot. You have dynamic inventory. The pricing in the inventory changes. The pricing of certain legacy cars and legendary cars uh, change based off of their collector value out in the real world. And that's something that I, I think is a cool feature. Is it a feature that should mean that the game cannot be played when the servers are offline? No, I think the game needs to have a built in fallback of what natural prices are. And then when the game is online and you have that functionality, then let the prices change. But you should be able to put this game in an offline mode. So play it fully, which kind of leads us to this. It's an issue about DRM. There's a little bit more to that, too, because an extra layer in here is that 1.07, therefore 1.08 as it came, brought with it a secondary change. I don't know if you remember last week we talked about microtransactions in Gran Turismo. And I think we all three mostly agreed that while it wasn't the best situation, the game didn't seem to actively push you towards doing them or penalize you. But rather, if you just wanted to skip the game and go right into playing with the fastest, craziest cars, you could spend money and do it.
1: And now it seems Would like... Would you it, agree with that, so Yeah, and now it seems like it is pushing you, right? With the new update.
0: That's kind of the point. After the updates, or after the game... Gets reviewed, and everyone kind of goes, hey, there is microtransactions for this game, but the game doesn't feel like it's pushing you at all. I never felt like I had issues. Now comes the thing, which it's a really odd thing. So two events saw, they had their rewards drastically increased. Yeah. And what they said was that they looked at the amount of driving and skill needed for each race and adjusted accordingly, what the rewards were so that it wasn't over or under. Paying you so two events that were originally five thousand credits for the reward bumped all the way up to seventy thousand for two events. Therefore, you would assume that that means that those events were originally heavily undervalued and would take took way more driving time and skill than what the reward payout accounted for. Right. It's it's sixteen go ahead go i was going to
1: say it takes longer to get the achievable result that it did is from yeah. what i'm reading
0: so they adjusted up right right now 16 different events had their payouts reduced by half or even more up to half or more i don't want to go through every single one of them but a lot of them saw their values slashed from 70,000 to 40,000 60,000 to 25,000 things like that and you get into this point where it feels like you let the game release, you give it initial values, and whether or not this was their intention, you have to deal with the optics of how this is perceived. You have an issue with people talking about microtransactions. You have uh, the director for the game come out and say, we want people to be able to drive these cars without pushing them into microtransactions. He even said that with the most recent patch. And yet, you reduce payout for a number of events significantly these are later game events that typically gave more money therefore allowed you to farm them over and over again as much as you wanted to try out different cars and whatnot so that you could earn money to therefore collect cars and now you're cutting those drastically now i'm not at a point where i've been able to experience each of these tracks and things um, by myself because I haven't rushed through the game necessarily in that way. I've been experimenting, letting my brother replay races, me, me replay races, seeing if me and him could beat each other's times. I've been doing dumb competitions with, uh, Ryan, who I know hadn't really bothered with Jason S. Who's actually been taking me to a point whenever I would work on getting a time that was better than his and coming back and beating my time. So shout out to Jason. Um, but essentially, it would seem like no matter what, whether I have experience with them or not, the visual aspect that comes from this is that it looks like they are taking an opportunity once after the game is reviewed so well and gotten some people in to be like, haha, now we're going to change that, drop those prices down considerably, push you more towards topping your value up. So, so that's one aspect.
1: The, here's why I am kind of leaning towards that aspect. So apparently there was an issue, a small issue, from what I've read on Reddit, of like the game just flat out not wanting to launch properly. And it's mitigated by by restarting your PS5. And some PS4 users had it too. Well, apparently that is what is the context of this update. And Cause, the director of the game, even notates that in the update notes. But it's very brief, and then it goes on to a, a whole litany of things about this this boost up for everything else. And to me, that seems like if you're gonna have patch notes, you can't say that, oh, this is the reason for the patch, but then the majority of the patch notes be something else entirely. That's 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 that is the that is the bulk of the patch it seems like it seems yeah. like the the increase in re, or the increase in uh the cost and the decrease in rewards was the bulk of the patch when the patch notes and that's what the patch notes say but i would i can't it's weird to say that the patch was for this small issue that seem that people seem to be having but then they 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 then corrected all this
0: which is an important issue yes but yeah, but it's, it kind of reminds me of the idea of like, hey, this is something we really need to do. So let's lev- let's have everyone come together and be like, hey, you know what? This is a massive problem. We need to work on this. But also, if you agree <laughs> to this and you also agree to this other thing, it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a, something that people talk about all the time and, and not liking about certain aspects of of politics and even small local politics of like even school level. of Hey, let's sneak this one thing in be- so that we can underneath fixing a thing that everyone wants to get fixed. Yeah. yeah, it's important to fix a game to where it is actually working for as many people as possible. That's important. absolutely the stability of a game is, is arguably the
1: most important part of the game.
0: Exactly. Adjusting prices is a really hard thing to justify this early into the game's release when you've already had a controversial aspect around your your microtransactions that I originally found defensible. You know, hey, the game is designed in such a way that you aren't being impacted or punished at all you can still buy pretty much any car that you want to buy pretty freely by earning it. And none of the, the grind feels relative to the car. You know, if you're wanting to buy a, a $2 million car, you're going to have to pump out some races. That's always been the case. Yeah. You've always had to have so, a grind. I think adding. Yeah. that I, That's true in all racing games, right? And need for speed. If you want to buy the, uh, the, you know, oh, I want to buy the Koenigsegg. Okay. Then you're going to have to get the money to buy a Koenigsegg. You know, it's, the way it or works. Or the
1: amount of race sticks and uh, unlock
0: it. Yeah, whatever it be. And and it, that's also an interesting thing because I actually think Gran Turismo has done a lot. I have only bought like three cars. Every other car, I have won as a gift car. And the game, caf- the, the cafe system, which is like this kind of RPG element of the game to a degree, is there for that. It's about unlocking cars for you, which allow you to do different types of races, which allow you to learn more about racing history And I like that gameplay loop. So I'm not yet hitting the point where this is an issue. But no matter what, they have to deal with the outside looking in optics of this. And I don't think that this is a way to attract new users. I don't think this is a way to make old users who are far enough in the game for this to impact them. I don't think that's a smart idea either to berate your new users or your, your, your longtime loving fans. And... There's another aspect of this I haven't quite brought up yet. So one of the things that can happen in the game as part of the cafe system, even not only does the cafe system give you races that allow you to unlock gift cars and also occasionally as a reward for completing one of the cafe books by collecting certain cars or getting a certain placement in a tournament, will give you these things that are called roulette tickets. And essentially you have a one star, two star, three star, there's starred roulettes and the potential rewards are higher, the higher the amount of stars. One problem I've had in the game is almost every roulette ticket includes a car. Normally, if it's a one-star roulette, it's not a crazy expensive car. If it's a three-star, it is a higher-end car. Uh, And then your potential for getting big payouts of either expensive parts or big sums of credits that you can land on are higher. Well, the problem is, is that you have five things, right? There's a you have a one in five chance if you were looking at it for this roulette. You have a smaller pile of cash, a bigger pile of cash, a um, a very tiny pile of cash. Normally, a part and then a car. Every single time that I have done a roulette, and I've I've redeemed about twenty of them, maybe thirty of them at this point it has always landed on the smallest value thing without fail. So hmm. what you're telling me is that there's a one in five chance for me to get anything so far, every single time <laughs> I get the one, in, it's been 100%. it reminds me of like a, yeah, it reminds me of like a claw machine, right? Where it's like, it doesn't want to pay out until it's reached a point where it considers itself to be. So it seems like it's skewed to give you the lowest value you should, thing. You should do a So that experiment. you have more reason.
1: Yeah, do, do this, do that. And log it for like the next ten times. Take a screenshot of it every next ten times, and then spend spend the lowest amount possible you can on the game. Then do it again. I
0: would be very, very
1: curious. Ah, I would be
0: very curious
1: to see if that outcome would change.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, so you have a you have a lot of different out. Uh, elements within the game that feel like it's pushing you towards this right so you have this roulette which is giving you free money and free cars and free parts so it's hard to complain but when the roulette is consistently giving you the absolute lowest it can and i was looking online because i thought okay maybe it's just me maybe i have really weird luck i went online a lot of people have experienced the same thing and then they say you know i was believing the same thing until finally i won a bmw or uh, a lamborghini or blah 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 from it but it's kind of that weird thing of where it's like it still gave them 20 roulette tickets of the lowest value before finally giving them a good value yeah and no matter what that's still you you kind of get over it because you finally got one of the benefits so it's kind of like when you get punched in the gut every day for a month and then when someone slaps you on your arm you're like oh well that really wasn't as bad as the gut punch i guess that's pretty good i'm doing all right it doesn't really mean that they got anything great out of it and that the game is not having issues. And it is weird because it's a free extra reward for doing something that's already rewarding you with free cars. But it feels like, again, a layer of the game that's pushing you towards, well, we're giving you free stuff, but we don't really want you to get the biggest pile of cash because we, we want you to have an incentive to buy credits with real money. And whether that's actually their intent or not, they have to deal with the looks of this. The secondary thing I kind of find interesting about this is that if you really want to look at this from a slimy standpoint, right, one of the things I messaged to Chris last night was it's definitely not a good look. And if they'd done it significantly later and said it's because of the game meaning to be a live service-like game and they want to adjust balance, they could introduce seasons into this game, right? And they could say, per season, we want to adjust the amount of money you get because we felt like off of looking at stats, certain races gave more money than – think of it this way. Let's go off of racing games. Let's go to Elden Ring. There are there are some things in Elden Ring that you can kind of do and farm to get ridiculous amounts of runes, Right? It would essentially be like them saying, hey, after looking, we saw a lot of players were doing this and to balance the game and keep the challenge where we, where we intended it to be, we're going to adjust these values. But doing that three months from now, six months from now, alongside the release of a season, whatever you want to call it, is a lot different than being like, hey, two weeks after we, we released, uh, we're adjusting all the values after reviews come out and said that this is not an issue. It would kind of be like if Assassin's Creed... Uh, Odyssey, had launched with the double XP booster, but Initial reviews are like the XP boosters there, but the game always felt like it was giving you the experience you needed to continue a good pacing. And then two weeks after launch, Assassin's Creed was like, Yeah, guys, hey, we're going to go ahead and adjust the experience rate down. We feel like people are leveling up way too quickly. But if you still want to buy this double XP boost to get back to where you were, then you can spend ten dollars and pad our wallets. It's what it again, regardless of what their intention is, this is a really bad look. So this is discussion one. Do you have anything else you want to add to this side of it? No.
1: I think we're pretty much on the same page here.
0: Okay. So discussion two that I wanted to have is a very specific one. And it's about what the value of Always Online is to this game. Let's look past... Everything else. So if we go back to the always online aspect, a game that is essentially a single player game through and through and has always been and is still acting like one with a multiplayer component, as they all have had for a long time at this point, it is being pushed down and being said, hey, we want to make this game always online. So that now this is. I'm trying to find the best way to word this, but essentially, think of it this way, Saul. If I wanted to go play right now, if I wanted to go play Gran Turismo Three a Spec, okay, what can I? I can go and I can put that PS2 disc into my PS3 or a PS2, and I can play it right now. Correct. Correct. Okay, and it's a game that is designed where all of the systems work in, independent of online. Uh, independent of online, there's nothing within the game that is inherent to online, like say destiny if destiny one closed its servers today that game is entirely about playing with other people right so if you if you put in if you if they turn the servers off for destiny and you 10 years from now want to play destiny one you wouldn't put it in and you realize oh man the servers aren't there when you think of the game you think of a game that is so inherent to online play that it couldn't work without the server so therefore it's okay that you can't play it anymore that's one thing if in 10 years from now, if I want to go and play Gran Turismo seven and Sony has decided to stop supporting the servers, the entirety of this game that I consider to be one of the best games of the year so far. And a game that I'm absolutely adoring, there's a chance that in 10 years, I won't even be able to play this game at all.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a big problem. Um, that's a big problem with anything in this in the gaming industry or the gaming sphere right now, is that games that require any sort of mandatory online for single player based games should never be a thing. Um, and people will say often, "Oh, well, it's for this feature." Well, that feature shouldn't exist in this game then. That there is no feature that so- is important enough to keep a, a single player online game to have. M- mandatory online there's no feature that that's important
0: yep yeah. so do you want to actually know what the reasoning was
1: um, as to
0: why they said they went always online
1: Do you? could you guess I'm going to assume this is the really pessimistic side of me is that so that somebody could not uh, just play day one patch and unlock everything they want to unlock and then go online later at discounted prices um with that amount of credits they have or money they have that they got from earning it before they nerfed the earning that's my
0: that that's an interesting guess that's my the pessimistic actual side. guess uh, the actual answer that they gave was to stop cheaters from using modified saves that are only able to be played and pulled and actually changed from modded playstations that already can't go online. Yeah. But more importantly, let's let, let's take a step back because this is going into the conversation I want to have around DRM. And DRM, which stands for digital rights management for anybody who's curious, is an idea that's been around since probably early 2000s, if I'm if maybe even late 90s, but probably early 2000s. Uh, one of the first games that I think ever had a big DRM scandal was EA's Spore. Do you remember that game? I do. I had that game on PC. Spore was awesome on PC. But do you remember that Spore, when you put the disc in and you played the game, unlike all previous PC games where you could go to another friend's house, take the disc with you, install it on their PC, and as long as they had the disc in, they could play the game, right? Right. Okay. Do you remember Spore had an activation code? I actually don't. I don't remember that. Okay, well, once you put Spore into a computer and installed it, you had to activate it. And that would keep you from taking Spore and letting your friend borrow it without deactivating your copy. And therefore, well, I don't even think you could deactivate your copy, but that was a scandal is that essentially they were trying to keep people from pirating because you couldn't pirate because you didn't have an activation. Dang. And there was no way to pirate the activation. And you know who made Spore? Who owned so, Spore? EA! Yeah. <laughs> So, what, crazy. interesting level though, right? So, let's talk about what DRM in that position was. DRM in that position was essentially An overreaction. the first step out of the idea that DRM was about stemming piracy, right? Let's try and cut off piracy, head it off to where it makes it harder to do it. So, we're going to DRM this game so that people can't find ways to manipulate it as easily, therefore helping the product actually be bought, which is important. I do think you should buy games. I do think that there are issues with pirating. And as much as sometimes people, companies will push you into pirating because there's no way around it, that does happen. Um, I think that this is a good, it's an important thing. Digital rights management as a way to stave off piracy is entirely fine. But then we move into round two of DRM, as I'm going to call it. Do you remember what that was?
1: Um, that was
0: multiplayer codes for multiplayer passes. You're, you're, you are on the right path. So round two of what I call bad DRM is, uh, yeah, the multiplayer passes that you had to have that Sony, and that Sony and a bunch of other people implemented in their online games. So, and this was something that you also saw plague the announcement and reveal of the Xbox One. So yeah, that's, that's this is round two. 2013 awfulness. So, so, evolution two, round two, whatever you want to call it, of DRM was really about staving off used game sales. Okay, so that was the thing about the three the Xbox One is that if you bought a game used, you would have to pay an activation fee in order to play the game so that developers were still seeing benefits for their game sales. Now, of course this went terribly, but it never went away. If you remember, the Xbox one to this day still has to be initialized. You have to be online at least once to put the game system into offline mode for you to play games and if you don't if you plug your if you buy an Xbox 1 and you plug it in and you never connect it to the internet you cannot play games offline until you connect it it goes to the authentication server that they set up originally and then tell the authentication server that you're going to go into offline mode so that it won't bother you, so that your system will be like, okay, we've got a stored authentication code that we can use for offline play. Yes, Huge issue. And it's all about being able, initially it was all about being able to control used game sales. Okay, still a step too far and clearly nobody liked it, but you can at least kind of understand where you're coming from, right? It's a product. People need to make money off of products as much as they can. And used game sales are somewhat hindering People's ability to make money off of making very high budget games. Okay. This is what I'm, what we're going into with Gran Turismo 7 is what I'm going to call round three of DRM. It has nothing to do with you sales. Right. It has nothing to do with piracy. Nope. It has everything to do with control. When the game is always online, in this case, Sony and Polyphony Digital have complete control over. How you play the game, when you play the game, and your ability to play the game in the future. Now, I'm assuming that Sony is not looking at this and thinking, well, we want to stop people from playing it in the future, even though they could, right? If you want to help Gran Turismo 8's sales whenever they decide to come out with it. You could very easily say, ah, we're going to stop supporting Gran Turismo 7's uh, server and we're going to close it down. And if you want to play Gran Turismo, you'll have to buy Gran Turismo 8. Now, they would never do that. That is a terrible marketing choice. And they they would feel that pain. But they technically could. And therefore, 10 years from now in the future, when they decide that it doesn't make sense from a monetary standpoint to keep the Gran Turismo 7 server alive, they will turn it off and you will never be able to play Gran Turismo 7 again because the game when it's in offline mode only has a a very very finite number of tracks and cars that you can play yeah that's pretty pretty bad so you know what's weird about this Gran turismo 7 the entire game is on the disc and yet without an online connection you can't play it you can play the whole game right really weird Uh, you know what's now you know what else is interesting Microsoft currently, I don't know if you remember this about Halo Infinite. If you buy a Halo Infinite disk, guess what's not on the disk? The campaign. The campaign. So to play Halo Infinite at all, you have to log on to a server and download something. You have to download the campaign. And this is something you see across a lot of the smart delivery systems where the entire game is not on the disc, something will be missing and they'll have to download data to give you the version. So some games do it to where, Oh, Hey, here, this is an example. I don't actually know, but Hey, here's Elden Ring. Elden Ring has a, an Xbox one version, an Xbox one X version, an Xbox series S version and an Xbox series X version. We're going to just put the series S version on the disc and if you want the Series X content, you've got to connect it online and download the remainder of the, of the high-end textures or whatever it be, or the code base that allows the game to utilize the Series X version of code base. That's an issue, too. So I feel like the conversation I kind of want to have is I want to get – because clearly I think I'm giving mine. I want to see your feel, and I eventually want to hear Chris's, about this. And what really needs to be done from a consumer pushing back against that standpoint.
1: Well, so and if you think there should even be that. I, I do. Um, I think that it is very important as consumers that when we see features, quote unquote, like this, that you're vocal in the fact that you don't like them. I think that that's a very key component to... The gaming industry and it not getting overwhelmed. Um, I was talking about this like two or three months ago um, or a little bit bit less than that actually but about a month and a half ago about being vocal about these things because if you're not vocal about these things then eventually um, we won't see what I would consider the future of digital games um, as the utopian thing that it can be and that it should be more so or less that it'll be um, really bad off. Um, what I mean by that is if people were to, um, like let's say with Microsoft back in 2013 with the whole DRM thing, let's say if there was not Sony there to balance that and say, you know what, if you want to give your friend a disc to play, here, give it to him. Here it is. Um, if they were to say like, well, we could profit off this. Let's go with that. Uh, and they were to do that, you know, <sighs> I honestly think if that was the case, there wouldn't be any. Uh, there wouldn't be any need for physical media at that point, anyways. Because at that point, give me just a second. Yeah, so go ahead.
0: Keep your keep your mind. I'm marking it down uh, for the thing. I gotta go see what the. I'm assuming you can hear Vash, right? No, that's good. I'm worried, worried about the thing. He won't shut up, and it's distracting as hell. I'll be okay. right back.
1: So is it just right.
0: Vash being Vash? It's because the kids and Hannah and my brother are playing on the front porch and he's just freaking out because he's in the kennel. Uh-oh. But I had to make sure I could hear him. I couldn't hear them. So. Gotcha. All right, go ahead. You were talking about yeah, – So um, I think that well, – Go ahead. I'll just cut this whole part out. Well, I think it was uh, – I think it's
1: the the responsibility of consumers to speak out against this kind of stuff. Um, I think that it's also the responsibility of companies to do it as well. We see that Sony spoke out against it against with Microsoft with Microsoft's 2013 DRM incident. If it wasn't for Sony doing that, I don't think that we would be in a great place right now uh, for gaming at all. Um, I actually don't think that there would well, be yeah, a physical disc be, at all.
0: Because if Sony would have agreed with yeah, it, there wouldn't be it. Then I, there'd be put, no push. Yeah. Th-
1: and I don't think physical media would exist at that point anymore. I don't think if Sony, if, if, if that was the case, then nobody would see what, what what would be the extra added benefit other than collectors to have a disc. If you can't trade it in, if you can't give it to your friend, there is no benefit unless you're a collector. And the collector, the amount of people that that buy games to collect them, versus the amount that buy them and with the intention to trade them in when they're done, are is so so small. Um, so I think that it is the due diligence of people. Um, that when they see stuff like this with Gran Turismo, they call it out, and they and you know as you are, you're giving them criticism despite that you're saying that this may be the best game you played this year. Um, you're not blindly saying that this game is the best game you played this year, without noting its faults. And it's important, especially for us that have a public voice, to um, give us give what we truly feel about this. But it's also important to call them out when stuff like this happens, because I think that as we move closer towards a more digital future. Um, that there could be way more exportation involving stuff like this. And if that continues to happen, then the digital future that should be, where you can trade digital games to your friends, um, you can then maybe sell them back to the marketplace or sell the license to somebody else, um, and of course get refunds on games you don't enjoy, that little utopia paradise won't exist. Um, As a matter of fact, it may be even worse. Um, And, you know, I always give a shout-out to Steam because Steam is one of the places that is a completely all-digital marketplace and has done it right for years. And I think that the more criticism that we lay upon other companies that still are behind the times when it comes to digital marketplaces like that, um, I think it's important to do so. Um, So this is my
0: yearly – You bring up Steam, right? right? And I think Steam's really important. Because I do agree that for the most part, Steam has continued to get it right more often than everyone else and has, in a way, pushed people. Like Xbox's return policy, they changed to essentially mirror Steam's exactly. And I think that that's putting more pressure on PlayStation to eventually do the same. And I hope that that's the outcome. Therefore, my real hope right now while we're talking about Steam is going towards I want Steam to be the first place to actually do exactly what you're talking about. And what's weird is Sony has asked this in a poll. So clearly, it's something that's going around. We've been talking about it for years, but companies themselves have been thinking about the potential. Uh, But I want Steam to be the first person, the first company, to really look and say, listen, you can give your code to someone else. You lose access to the game, but you can give it to them. You can sell it to them. You can loan it to them. You can trade it back into us for a certain dollar amount that you we so that we benefit from you having a certain amount to re-spend back in our store so that you stay part of us. That that is the GameStop business model. Yeah. It's just a terrible version. GameStop's become a terrible version of that model for a number of different reasons. Um, and for a long time, that's what I've talked about. I will I can't. It's weird. I've essentially gone all digital by way of not actually spending my money on games anymore. Game sharing and so that I I benefit from games that Chris buys and then Chris benefiting from the games that I use my rewards points for essentially means that I haven't bought a physical game that wasn't a collector's edition in a long time. But I still prefer physical media because of the fact that physical media allows me as a consumer to do what I wish with my product, which actually kind of brings me back. I want to take a second. I told you that the reason for this DRM that they gave, right, was for cheating and not wanting people to use uh, adjusted saves. Why? Why do you care? Because, like we said, microtransactions—they can't really go on. They can't. Yeah, well, they can't go online with these already. So there's no fairness. There's no worry about that. Uh, Playstations that are able to do these things and run these saves are already uh, running firmware that's not supported by the newest version of. of the PlayStation store. Now, of course there's times where that's been gotten around. Vita is a good example of that. You can, if you have a modded Vita, you can spoof your version and go on the store and still play on the right. So it's not an end all right. But this is one of those examples of why are the majority paying the price for what the minority are doing? And at that point, why is it, why does it matter if what the minority are doing is not really impacting anybody anyway? And what I mean by that is, if someone wants to buy this game and edit their save, they bought the game. It's their game. I don't care what they do with it. They bought it. It's their product. Why can they not do what they see fit for it? They may break their game and not be able to play it in the long run as a means of messing with it. But hey, as long as they're not distributing that out to someone else, why does it matter? And even if it does, right, it, it, when you look at that, hey, they're distributing it out to someone else. Now it starts to be a problem because they're creating this for other people or they're finding ways to go online and mess with people. Well, then ban people. Yeah. You already know how to handle this. You look at what people are doing. You monitor their activity. And if you can see that they're using modified save files and coming on and that's somehow adversely affecting a, people's ability to enjoy the online aspect of the game, ban them. Why is the move to go towards always online? And the thing is, I don't think that this is a polyphony. I don't think polyphony were looking and saying, we want the game to be always online. I think Sony said, we want the game to be always online.
1: Well, this is their first live service game.
0: And polyphony's been... Out of 10. Well, well, not really. Sport is essentially... Sport is always online. But guess what's different about sport? It doesn't have all of the single player stuff that this game really does have. It has a campaign. But that game was far more online-based, and they said that from the get-go, and they said that that's part of why they're calling Gran Turismo Sport. It's an offshoot of a more online version of this game. So, it makes sense. Now, If Gran Turismo 7 said, hey, here's a single player, here's everything that you can do without the game being online, and then when you want to do online interactions, of course you have to be online because they're online interactions, then it would be like every Gran Turismo before it. There's no reason, as you said, for them to do this other than someone wanting to have a handle on the control. And like you said, seems very, very likely that what's going on is the boardroom working their way down is we've got to find a way to make microtransactions and make money in ways that other companies are doing. Maybe Microsoft's making a ton of money with Forza, uh, Forza Horizon microtransactions. I don't know. But some some, not pressure, but something is going on in the market where they're saying, we're missing out on money we could be making that other people are making. Yeah. Therefore, if we do this, we can solve this problem. So something's got to happen in that regard because somebody needs to f- trigger companies in. And I think if Steam is the first person to really do that and then make PC the place to be and see all these things go down and then Microsoft follows in suit and then maybe Nintendo, even though I doubt Nintendo ever will because they just get to exist in a vacuum, then Sony will see pressure to do so. So I definitely want to... <sighs> I want to get Chris's
1: opinion on this next week, and I think we should do the community's take around this. But how do you want to phrase the community's take for this? Because I think this is an important enough problem that we (laughs) need to reach out to the community and hear back on.
0: Yeah, and I also really want to urge anybody who's playing a game and seeing this, I do think this is a time to find whatever way that you can to constructively and reasonably, voice your disc, your disconcern with it. And if possible, you know, here's the thing. I've already bought Gran Turismo. Right. I have. I can't do anything about that. And that's why I think Chris's problems are that they did all this after initial sales. Right. Now, here's the other reality, right? Gran Turismo is, uh, is a game with a long tail. Every Gran Turismo goes on to sell millions and millions and millions of copies. It would be foolish to look at this and say that they did this after millions of people have bought the game. It hasn't. They've done this after a subsect of the people who are initially wanting to buy it have done it. You have two options here. Either you've bought the game and you can therefore continue to play the game and get your value out of it, but not support the microtransactions if you disagree with this mentality. Or quit playing the game if you feel comfortable enough in wasting the money that you sent to make a message. Or if you haven't bought the game but were interested in it, this happens for any game, then don't buy it. If you've not bought it yet, speak with your wallet, don't buy it. It doesn't matter if I'm telling you that it's one of the best games I've played all year. It is, and I I absolutely adore so much about the game. And I will continue playing it cuz I've already bought it and I am enjoying the game, but I will not buy microtransactions. I will not support this practice. And I hope that other people who otherwise were intending to buy it take a second and go, "I don't want to buy this," and vocally make that clear to PlayStation in any way that you can. Tell them why you're not buying it. Show them why you're not buying it and let them see what their actions are going to do. And that's the only way that we as consumers can really make a thing as long as you do it reasonably. This is not a moment for death threats. No, This is not a moment for talking and and yelling at the developer themselves and pointing out a singular developer and trying to throw it on them. That's not what it is. This is a company, Sony, making a decision that is impacting a group whose name is attached to a product. And guess what? Polyphony Digital, as a developer, is wholly owned by Sony. They have to do what Sony says if they want to have a job. Right? They are doing their job. This is not a moment to trash all over Polyphony. This is a moment to specifically point at who the problem is in this situation, Sony, and tell them why you don't want this to keep them from doing it in the future. Um, looking at the community's take as a whole, I think the best thing that we can really do is... Ask people what their thoughts are on the current form of DRM and how it's being used and what they think should be our consumer response to it and the best way to do it. I mean, I, I can't really – do you think there's a, a better or a more poignant question within that that you're looking no, at? No. Uh, My big thing is is making this known and having people really see it for what it is. Yeah. Well, I think. And then try and effect change. More around it. can be formatted in the text,
1: of course, that when we post these questions, which.
0: I yes, guess I will definitely think that, on it. But that's essentially the question at hand is do you see this as a gross overuse of DRM and what DRM is even supposed to mean? Uh, because here's the problem. This is essentially DRM, but the problem with DRM is it's consistently being used as a way to actually minimize your rights as a digital owner, despite being called digital rights management. Right. This should be your right as a purchaser of this digital product to do what you see fit with it. Yep. And it's, it's being stomped on here from a game that does not need to be, nor is designed in such a way that online is necessary. Absolutely.
1: So so you, uh,
0: we'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it. And of course, again, we want to hear your thoughts on uh, how you want to uh, us to handle or look at incorporating write-ins to the show and if you would be excited for that. So everyone find a, uh, find time uh, to either reach out on your own and, and go ahead and throw us your opinions on that or wait for the community's take where we will rephrase that to you. Saul, do you have anything else you want to close off with?
1: No, I think uh, we got everything we needed. And of course, you know, you can... Give us all those opinions and uh, answer the community's take over at Twitter at Triangle SQRD. You can check us out, of course, across all podcast services um, and uh, our Discord. That's linked in the description below. Uh, If you want to see our beautiful faces, you can check us out on YouTube. And uh, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nartech, where just for a dollar a month, you can help support the show. It helps support the setup that I'm using now. Um, despite this is gen one mic this is from the very earliest of all the shows uh but the camera the um the mic arm all that was helped because of patreon and because of you guys so thank you all for that and uh, we'll see you guys for episode 254
0: next week Yep. Big shout out to our patrons, the Lord Corgi, Salvador Garcia, Hammond Egger, Bailey Robertson, Rob Wartpoint, Mark Schutz, Cypher Primus, Kyle Grimm, Rude Days 93, Joshua Lago, Kevin Bacon Bits, Luke Rabbit, Danny Villiobos, Solitary Red, Jehudi MD, Sean, Josh Ayers, Derek Porter, Constantly Kenny, Matthew Green, Sean Santarude, Steven Salazar, Shadowist, and my name is Dan. Just like them, you can head over to patreon.com slash nartech and give as little as a dollar per month, and we thank you all.